Well, let me welcome everybody to our evening debate on the question, does the Christian God exist? The debate is co-sponsored by the Sagan Society of the University of Georgia and the Christian Faculty Forum of the University of Georgia. I am William L. Power, better known as Will Power. <laughs> Honest to God. A, a Pelagian name, if there's ever been one. I am professor of religion in the Department of Religion, and my fields are philosophical theology, Christian theology, and philosophy of religion. Our debaters are Professor Massimo Piliucci, an associate professor at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and Professor William Lane Craig, a research professor of philosophy at Talbert School of Theology in La uh, Madra, California. <coughs> Professor Piliucci's field of study is ecology and in evolutionary biology, and his research is on the evolution of genotype environmental interaction uh, on nature-nurture problems. He received his doctorate in genetics at the University of Ferrara in Italy and his Ph.D. in botany from the University of Connecticut. And he's currently working on a Ph.D. in philosophy at the University of Tennessee. Professor Craig pursued his undergraduate studies at Wheaton College, receiving a B.A. in 71, and graduate studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School with an M.A. in 74 and an M.A. in 1975. The University of Birmingham, England, Ph.D., 1977, and University of Munich, Germany, Doctor of Theology, 1984. From 1986, he taught philosophy of religion at Trinity, during which time he, uh, uh, during which time uh, he and his family, and his wife Jan, started their family. In 1987, they moved to Brussels, Belgium, where Dr. Craig pursued research at the University of Louvain until 1994. Both scholars are well-known uh, published authors. Both have received prestigious honors and have been officers in their professional societies. By agreement of the debaters, Professor Craig will begin the evening and will lead off uh, to be followed by Professor Pilucci. The format of the debates will be along these lines. Each debater will have 20 minutes for an opening statement, followed by the other 20 minutes, 12 minutes for the first rebuttal, 8 minutes for the second rebuttal, and 5 minutes for closing statements. The timers are down on our first row. They'll be indicating to the uh, debaters the uh, time that they have uh, left and we'll try to keep things within the limits that we have set. Um, uh, after the uh, presentations of both presenters, uh, I've been charged to take control of the question and answer period, in which what the arrangement would be is anyone who has a question for Professor Craig will, be, will come down this aisle at this microphone, 
Anyone for Professor Pilucci will come down this aisle at this microphone. The questioner will have 30 seconds for a question, and I'm going to be mean because we don't want any exhortations, confessions, or anything like that, but a simple question that lasts no more than 30 seconds. Or the wrath of God or the non-God will fall upon you. <laughs> the, uh, each uh, debater will have two minutes to respond uh, to the question. The other one will have a one-minute response to the response, and then the reverse will be in order. Let me make three quick announcements, and we will begin our evening debate. Uh, first of all, let me mention that access to publications from both authors can be found through the Sagan Society as well as the Christian Faculty Forum. And Dr. Pellucci has uh, asked that to indicate that at the end of the evening, his own book uh, called Tales of the Rational will be available to anyone in the back of the uh, auditorium. Furthermore, as you probably noticed, that there will be audio and visual tapes that will be available uh, uh, of the debates. And let me just mention, uh, on the request of the Sagan Society, that an upcoming event will be, uh, and I have to get my notes in order, uh, on March the 28th at 7.30 p.m. Uh, in room 101 of Peabody Hall, there will be a uh, presentation called Legalizing Same-Sex Marriage what loving has got to do with it. The professor, uh, University of Georgia Professor Clark Wolf, uh, will be one of the persons who's going to be presenting it, and that will be the upcoming event. Uh, uh, I think that is it, and our first debater will be Professor uh, Craig. Good evening. I want to begin by thanking the Sagan Society and the Christian Faculty Forum for the invitation to participate in tonight's important debate. In raising the question of God's existence, we are, in effect, engaging in the assessment of a metaphysical hypothesis, namely the hypothesis that God exists. Accordingly, we need to ask ourselves two questions with respect to this hypothesis. First, what evidence is there that serves to falsify this hypothesis? And second, what evidence is there that serves to verify this hypothesis? Now, with respect to the first question, I'll leave it up to Dr. Piliucci to present the reasons why he thinks that this hypothesis is false. Atheists have tried for centuries to disprove the existence of God, but no one has been able to come up with a successful argument. Dr. Piliucci, on the other hand, in his article, God as a Falsifiable Hypothesis, says, my position is that belief in God can be falsified. So, rather than attack straw men at this point, I'll just wait to hear Dr. Piliucci's answer to the following question. What good evidence is there to falsify the hypothesis that God exists? Let's look then instead at the second question. What evidence is there that serves to verify God's existence? And tonight I'm going to present five pieces of evidence in support of the specific hypothesis that a creator and designer of the universe exists. 
who is the locus of absolute value and who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Now, whole books have been written on each one of these, so all I can do here is to present a brief sketch of each argument and then go into more detail as Dr. Piliucci responds to them. So, first then, the origin of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Why anything at all exists instead of just nothing? Typically, atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. But surely this is unreasonable. Just think about it for a minute. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. David Hilbert, who was perhaps the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, states, the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality. It neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas, but are real, that the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't just go back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. The astrophysical evidence indicates that the universe began to exist in a cataclysmic explosion called the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. Physical space and time were created in that event, as well as all the matter and energy in the universe. Therefore, as the Cambridge astronomer Fred Hoyle points out, the Big Bang Theory requires the creation of the universe from nothing. This is because as you go back in time, you reach a point at which, in Hoyle's words, the universe was shrunk down to nothing at all. Thus, what the Big Bang model requires is that the universe began to exist and was created out of nothing. Now, this tends to be very awkward for the atheist. For as Anthony Kinney of Oxford University urges, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. We can summarize our argument thus far as follows. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, by the very nature of the case, as the cause of space and time, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, and immaterial being of unimaginable power which created the universe. 
Moreover, I would argue it must also be personal. For how else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect like the universe? If the cause were an impersonal set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then the cause could never exist without the effect. If the cause were timelessly present, then the effect would be timelessly present as well. The only way for the cause to be timeless and for the effect to begin in time is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely chooses to create an effect in time without any prior determining conditions. And thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Number two, the fine-tuning of the universe. During the last 30 years, scientists have discovered that the existence and evolution of intelligent life depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions simply given in the Big Bang itself. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than any life-permitting universe like ours. How much more probable? The answer is that the chances that the universe should be life-permitting are so infinitesimal as to be incomprehensible and incalculable. For example, Stephen Hawking has estimated that if the rate of the universe's expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have recollapsed long ago into a hot fireball. PCW Davies has calculated that the odds against the initial conditions being suitable for later star formation, without which planets couldn't exist, is one followed by a thousand billion billion zeros, at least. He also estimates that a change in the strength of gravity or of the weak force by even one part out of ten to the one hundredth power would have prevented a life-permitting universe. There are around 50 constants and quantities in the Big Bang which must be fine-tuned in this way if the universe is to permit life. And it's not just each quantity that must be exquisitely fine-tuned. Their ratios to one another must also be finely tuned. So improbability is added to improbability to improbability until our minds are reeling in incomprehensible numbers. There is no physical reason why these constants and quantities have the values they do. The one-time agnostic physicist Paul Davies comments, Through my scientific work, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it merely as a brute fact. Similarly, Fred Hoyle remarks, A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics. And Robert Jastrow, the head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, has called this the most powerful evidence for the existence of God ever to come out of science. So once again, the view that theists have always held that there is an intelligent designer of the cosmos seems to make much more sense than the atheistic view that the universe, when it popped into being, uncaused, out of nothing, just happened to be, by chance, fine-tuned to an incomprehensible precision for the existence and evolution of intelligent life. 
We can summarize this second argument as follows. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe is due to either law, chance, or design. Two, it is not due to law or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Number three, objective moral values in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Many theists and atheists alike concur on this point. For example, Michael Roos, a noted philosopher of science, explains, the position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right. But we've got to be very careful here. The question here is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I certainly think that we can. Rather, the question is, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist? Like Professor Roos, I just don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the herd morality evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. And here Dr. Piliucci agrees. He says, and I quote, I agree with Dr. Roos. There is no such thing as objective morality. Morality in human cultures has evolved, and what is moral for you might not be moral for the guy next door, and certainly is not moral for the guy across the ocean. On the atheistic view, some actions, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development it has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. Thus, without God, there is no absolute right and wrong that imposes itself on our conscience. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down, I think we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, uh, torture and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Professor Roos himself admits the man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as wrong as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, self-sacrifice are really good. Thus, we can summarize this third argument as follows. Premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Premise two, objective values do exist, from which it follows logically and inescapably. Three, therefore, 
God exists. Number four, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. New Testament critics have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come, and as visible demonstrations of this, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands, and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just accept by faith or not. But there are actually three established historical facts recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, on the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian scholar who has specialized in the study of the resurrection, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. According to D.H. Van Dalen, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic of Vanderbilt University, Gert Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three. The original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. You see, Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. And Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anybody's rising from the dead before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Luke Johnson, a New Testament scholar from Emory University, muses, some sort of powerful, transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. N.T. Wright, uh, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. 
Therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. Finally, number five, the immediate experience of God. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. This was the way people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experiential reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is the case, then there's a real danger that arguments for the existence of God could actually distract our attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, then God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the external arguments that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. So in conclusion then, we've yet to see any arguments for, that God does not exist, and we have seen five reasons to think that God does exist. And together these constitute a powerful cumulative case for the existence of God. Now, if Dr. Piliucci wants us to believe atheism instead, then he's got to first tear down all five of the reasons that I presented for God's existence, and then in its place erect a case of his own to show that God does not exist. And unless and until he does that, then I think we can agree that theism is the more plausible worldview. Too much. We don't want to put everybody to sleep too early. Thank you. Well, thanks everybody for coming, and uh, and especially to the organizers for organizing this uh, lively debate. I hope that we're all going to be learning something tonight from it. Um, as Dr. Craig said, I I will examine his five arguments um, in in sequence, and I will try to make a point that they're actually not that convincing. In fact, they're not convincing at all. And then we'll get probably during the rebuttal time uh, to what kind of positive arguments are, are possible or even needed on the other side of the, of the debate. So my basic thesis is this. While I don't know the truth, and neither does Dr. Craig, neither of us really know what's going on here, um, it is beyond reasonable doubt, I think, that the Christian God is the result of the human imagination. Notice that I'm talking about the Christian God in particular and not of, of any concept of God. Dr. Craig spent quite a bit of time talking about generalized versions of God. Uh, this was not the topic of the debate, but I knew he was going to do that. So, here's argument number one that he presented. Uh, the origin of the universe. Well, as you will see, I'll dispatch of the first two arguments very quickly here, and then we'll probably get to this in the, in the rebuttal anyway. 
But the first argument is that the universe probably originated, my counter-argument is that the universe probably did originate by naturalistic means. After all, Big Bang and superstrings theory in physics are in fact theories, uh, naturalistic theories that explain the origin of the universe. And they don't require, contrary to what Craig seems to think as a, as a default hypothesis, any other agency. Uh, but the point is that even if the universe were in fact created by a god, uh, there would be no guarantee that there would be the particular Christian god that we're talking about here tonight. Any number of different gods would, make that kind of, would be able to make that kind of universe. And therefore, this is really not an argument at all. It's completely relevant to the existence of the Christian god, as much as it is relevant to a more general debate like the one that we had about three years ago in Tennessee. The second point uh, was that complexity of the universe. Well, the problem here is the same. It certainly is true that the universe is complex. Um, it is also true that there are uh, perfectly good naturalistic explanations for the complexity of the universe. There is such a, an entire field of research that is called complexity theory of, of how things become more complex. And of course, within biological organisms, there is the theory of evolution by natural selection that explains how organisms can become more and more complex. But again, the problem is that, by the way, that's a diagram of an eye to show you an example of complexity. Uh, but uh, the, the point is, again, that any god would be able, by definition, to do, or at least most versions of gods, would be able to, to com uh, create a complex universe. After all, they are uh, creators. And so that says absolutely nothing about the existence of the Christian god in particular. So we'll get rid of that argument as well. Now, I grant to Dr. Craig that a possible first argument that he's been using to some extent and with some qualifications is the, the idea of the existence of objective moral values. Although, again, if I really wanted to be um, looking at nitpicking and looking at the details, this is still not an argument for the existence of the Christian God because there's plenty of other religions who claim that their gods invented morality, and in some cases their morality is quite different from the Christian variety. Uh, therefore, I don't see how that is a, is a proof of the existence of, uh, of, a, of the Christian God in particular. But since I want this debate to last more than five minutes, I'll actually address this point. This is a direct quote from, from Dr. Craig. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. The problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down we all know it. Yes, I agree that objective moral values exist, and I agree that we all, all know it deep down. The difference is that there's a distinction between objective values and universal moral values. And uh, Dr. Craig seems to be talking about the two interchangeably, and I think that is a confusion of the two uh, arguments. So let me present a count first counter-argument. This is a false dichotomy. Essentially, what Dr. Craig is presenting is that he admits only two alternatives. Either there are universal, there's a universal moral code, which is given to us by, by God, or anything goes, or there is only moral relativism. Well, this is definitely a, a false dichotomy, which in fact very few, if any, uh, modern philosophers and ethicists uh, fall, uh, fall for. There is a third option. In fact, there is a variety of third options. The third option is a family of, of options. And that is that there are objective but local truths. That is, there are some things that are objectively true, but they're only true under certain circumstances. For example, rape. Um, he picked rape as an, as an example for his argument. Uh, rape in social animals is definitely wrong. It's objectively wrong. As Dr. Roos said, uh, quoted by Dr. Craig, um, it is objectively wrong because it just is not a good idea for social animals to allow uh, people or members of their species to go around raping or, for that matter, killing uh, other members of the same social group. You would not have a society in that case. So there is some, some objectivity to that. It is definitely objective that it's a bad idea to do it. Now, there are animals, on the other hand, uh, that use rape, for example, or what we would think of anthropomorphically as, as rape, 
um, as a way to gauge the strength of the male. And so the female actually uh, battles with the male in order to determine if the male is good enough uh, to inseminate her. Now, these things are pretty far from, from social animals like we conceive them. And they're certainly not in the, in the primate group. They are, for example, water striders. Now, for water striders, probably everybody would agree that morality doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't really apply. So there are some things that are moral and are right and are correct, they're truth, within certain boundaries. In this case, the social and biological boundaries of primates, not just human beings. And then, however, the same thing or similar behaviors just don't even pose the question under different circumstances, which is what I wanted to say in the quote that uh, Dr. Craig actually brought up from me. The other counter-argument is that this is, this is simply a non-sequitur. Uh, morality can come about with a, without a god, and it can evolve by natural selection because it is beneficial. So to state that if there are objective truths, that has, to be, that has to imply that that's because they come from a god. It's simply non, non, not true. There are plenty of objective things that don't come from a supernatural being, and morality can be one of those. Uh, this can be demonstrated. This is not just uh, simple talk. People have been working on these kind of problems for the last few decades. And, for example, there are very sophisticated mathematical models based on game theory uh, that show that, in fact, certain uh, moral rules or certain uh, decisions made by social animals are or are not adaptive, and therefore they are objectively better than others, and there are some others are objectively bad. Uh, this is something you can actually work on right now. There is also evidence uh, consistent with my idea that, that um, in fact, there are local moral truths. And these are, this is evident, empirical evidence that is brought up by the study of other primates. For example, our closest relatives, the, the uh, pygmy chimpanzee or bonobos. Uh, they, ex they present behaviors that are, in, very, in several respects, very similar to the behavior of human beings. They do have moral rules, or what we would interpret as moral rules. Uh, they punish uh, certain individuals for doing certain kinds of things. And those are the same kinds of, of actions that we don't allow in our society. So not only it is morality, there are some aspects of morality, not all of it, that are objective for human beings, but in fact they are objective also for our cousins. The third counter-argument is that the Christian God, one can make the argument, is not really that moral, or it depends at least on what you mean by morality. Let me give you a couple of examples. It's easy to talk about morality in general, but if you actually go to the Bible and look up a few passages, you get scared about the kind of morality we're talking about. For example, um, with the Lord's approval, a slave may be beaten to death with no punishment for the perpetrator as long as the slave doesn't die too quickly. So slavery is okay, apparently, according to certain passages in the Bible. But I don't consider that moral. Um, as a punishment, the Lord will cause, this is several different passages in the Bible, will cause people to eat the flesh of their own sons and daughters and fathers and friends. My gosh, this is something that nobody would, uh, would today think of as a moral thing, even though uh, we might think that there are good reasons to punish people. We certainly wouldn't subject them to eat the, the flesh of their own sons and daughters. I don't think that's a particularly moral behavior. Um, for a few more examples. Uh, this is a direct quote from Luke 19.27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me. So if you disagree with somebody's opinion, um, you can get slain on the spot. Now, you can argue, of course, this was God's opinion. How can you possibly disagree with that? Uh, but still, it's not particularly nice. I mean, we wouldn't uh, uh, enforce that kind of uh, rule tonight, for example. If you disagree with me, you can go out from this room in safety. 
And that servant who knew his master's will but did not make ready or act according to his will shall receive a severe beating. Again, the examples go on and on forever. I can give you, well, not forever. But there are quite a few more. And I can uh, provide anybody who wants to email me with direct quotes and a long list of examples. So one could question that particular aspect of it too. Now, Dr. Craig also brought up the historical facts concerning Jesus. And he says essentially that uh, Jesus had an unprecedented sense of divine authority. Uh, he brought up the, the point about the empty tomb that we heard. Uh, Jesus appeared after his death. And the disciples believed so strongly that they were actually willing to die for, for their faith. Well, let's take each one of these briefly um, in, into account. I only have a few minutes, so I can't get into too much detail. But first of all, the first counter-argument is that in fact, there have been a multiplicity of messiahs all over the history of the human world, both before and after Jesus, and in fact, at the same time as, as Jesus. So why would you pick one over another? Uh, there is little original, in fact, in the Christian religion, and, and uh, historians and, and scholars of comparative religion will, will tell you that. The stories of the virgin birth, for example, the sacrifice, the resurrection, are found in a lot of previous cultures. Uh, including those that influence Hebrewism and, and therefore Christianity. For example, Egyptians, Babylonians, and some Greek myths. And these are pretty well documented. Uh, so Christians, like a lot of other religions before them, they just cut and paste, like you do in Windows, um, and uh, you know, put together new stories that are slightly slight variation on previous ones. Uh, also, the moral precepts of Christianity are found, in fact, in other religions or philosophies. There's nothing particularly original about that either. Uh, and if you want an example, just go and read some of uh, Plato's dialogues. Uh, right there, there's Socrates, or what some people think like Socrates looked like. Uh, and uh, some passages in Socrates really do sound like Jesus talking uh, to, uh, to his disciples. The second argument was the empty, empty tomb. Well, the problem with the empty tomb is that there are obvious explanations for these facts. I'm not really ready to, to uh, acknowledge that these are facts. I think that these are speculations at best. Uh, let's, let's, not remember, let's forget that um, we're talking about events, alleged events, that occurred about 2,000 years ago, at which there were few witnesses, and about which it was written several years after the actual events. So I'm not sure that these were actually facts, but let's grant for, for a minute that they were. Well, there are much easier explanations uh, for, for, for each one of those facts that Dr. Craig brought up. Uh, for example, uh, it is interesting that uh, in, at the time there was a practice of, of reburial, reburial of some criminals. criminals uh, Jesus was, of course, uh, con uh, condemned by the Roman uh, state as a criminal. And criminals were actually not even supposed to be uh, buried if they were crucified. Um, if they were, according to rabbinic law, they were uh, buried in a, in a common, in a, in a common uh, tomb. And so it's very possible that he was actually buried and then uh, brought back to the, to the final iteration. Or there are simply documented, many documented cases in, in history of mass hysteria. Uh, these are documented throughout the ages, uh, up to the 20th century. And uh, I don't really see much of a reason to invoke the supernatural uh, if we can have a reasonable explanation uh, within natural uh, parameters. So the resurrection, uh, to put it as skeptic David Hume would have uh, put it in the, in the 18th century, is an extraordinary claim. Where is the extraordinary evidence? This is a very important point. Uh, there is nothing wrong with making extraordinary claims, and in fact some of these extraordinary claims uh, eventually do turn out to be correct. I mean, a physicist who tells you that you are made mostly of nothing is making a pretty extraordinary claim. Somebody who tells you that this, what this thing that, that looks and feels solid to me is actually made mostly of empty space, it's a pretty extraordinary claim. 
Fortunately for physicists, they back it up with powerful mathematical theories, which are also powerful backed up by empirical demonstration. So I'm inclined to believe quantum mechanics when, when they tell me something about tables and, and, and physical bodies. But the, these kind of extra, very extraordinary claims require a lot more evidence that Dr. Craig has been able to amass. Um, there's also another counter-argument that I call the Elvis effect. Uh, there are far more people claiming that Elvis is alive and has resurrected and, is, and appears around in different places of the world than ever claim to have seen Jesus alive. Now, are we going to believe those people? Uh, and if not, you have to explain why not. It seems to me that on the surface, there's a lot more witnesses for that kind of event or, for example, for uh, alien abductions or anything of the sort. In fact, uh, Elvis actually does, have, does make miracles as well. This is a weeping Elvis miracle uh, that you can find um, on the Internet. You can purchase the, the picture, of course, if, as you like, and you can worship it. There is a there is several religions, several cults about Elvis. Now, I'm being facetious here, but the question is, why would you not believe anything of this, thing, of this stuff unless you do believe that Elvis? How many people here believe that Elvis is alive? Not that many. Good, because otherwise my argument would be much less effective. <laughs> oh, we found one. Uh, now, the strength of belief argument, I don't think that proves, proves absolutely anything. Uh, in fact, for one thing, most other religions can count on similar strength of convictions. Okay? I mean, every, every member, well, maybe not every, but most members, most, most followers of most religions uh, are actually um, characterized by very strong convictions, and in many cases, they're willing to die for it. Uh, we've seen examples in the 20th century, pretty recently, in the last few years. Uh, so does that make, make any, uh, any uh, kind of prediction about the fact that they were right? I mean, the people in the Heaven's Gate cult uh, died because they thought that there was a UFO beyond the comet. Does anybody believe that they were right and they're now happily basking around the universe uh, on, hopping on, on flying saucers? No, good. The Nazis believed very strongly and were willing to die by the hundreds of thousands to follow whatever, uh, you know, that nutcase of Hitler was actually telling them to do. Uh, so obviously, being, able, being willing to die for a cause says absolutely nothing, unfortunately, about the truth of that cause. Now, the last exhibit that Dr. Craig had was the immediate experience of God. And I'm sure that many people here have had that, that, that immediate experience. I thought I had the same experience when I, was, uh, when I was young. So I know, I think, what you're talking about, or what he's talking about. He says, this isn't really an argument for God's existence. And in fact, it's, it's not. Now notice that we're down to very few arguments now, because of these five arguments, the first two don't apply to the Christian God. The third one doesn't really either. And the fifth one, by his own admission, is not an argument. And the, so the only argument so far that applies to the Christian God is the historical evidence of Jesus, which is not that strong, or no stronger than the, the, the resurrection of Elvis, at least. Again, this is a quote from of Dr. Craig. You can know God exists wholly apart from arguments simply by immediately experiencing him. Absolutely, that's true. Problem is, the brain is a funny thing. There are all sorts of things that we think we know, and then in fact turn out to be wrong. Uh, so how do you know that you know? Well, you feel that you know, that's true. But, I, you know, I, I felt in the past that I knew several things, and then it turned out that I was wrong. Uh, so how do you actually know that? Furthermore, we actually know quite a bit today about how the brain works, and it's a marvelous uh, topic in itself. We should have a debate just on that, uh, probably. Uh, there is your brain on the right. 
um, or, or a, scheme, a, a scheme of your brain. And the interesting thing is that some neurobiological research has actually shown that people can have very realistic mystical experiences uh, in which they even, uh, you know, complete with, uh, with sound and visual effects. Uh, a multimedia experience, uh, and come out of those as uh, um, believing that they got a, some kind of mystical insight uh, into the function of the universe, and they got closer to God and all that stuff. When, they, people, when people have actually found, uh, um, carried out some research on, on, on these subjects, it turned out that a lot of them had micro-seizures in the frontal lobes of the brain. So a micro-seizure in the frontal lobe of the brain, which, by the way, you can replicate under controlled conditions, you can actually put a helmet which produces very intense magnetic fields in the frontal lobe of the brain, and you can experience God at any minute on demand. I'm, I'm, I'm baffled that nobody has actually yet uh, you know, sold this, this to, to, some, uh, to Disney, for example, and making a part of a, of a theme park. But it is possible to do for research purposes. And so if that is true, you know, what makes you think that those experiences are actually not the result of brain seizures? Now, I'm not obviously arguing that anybody who believes in God is having brain seizures. That would be going a little too far. Uh, but the point is, what does that prove other than a natural sense of awe? What does the feeling of having of awe and a spiritual uh, feeling with the universe, which I have and a lot of scientists that are non-believers uh, do experience, uh, that proves absolutely nothing. It just tells you that you have this intuition, this understanding that you're a very tiny, small little speck on a, on, a, on a small planet somewhere in the, in the periphery of the galaxy, but in and of itself, it hardly constitutes a proof, as, in fact, Dr. Craig himself, himself has admitted. The last point that I want to address before concluding is, why bother? Why are we here tonight discussing this, this topic? Well, I'm not here actually to convince anybody that there is or there is not a God. This is your business. Um, my only goal tonight is actually to just think about it, make people think about it from maybe a slightly different perspective to what most people are used to think. But the real important uh, thing that concerns me is that there tends, tends to be a very good, solid uh, historical correlation between embracing an ideology without thinking and some very disastrous consequences. Uh, in fact, I would go as far as saying that ideologies kill. Now, not just religious ideologies, science can kill, atheism can kill, and, of course, religion can kill. So my qualms is really not with uh, religion in general or the Christian religion in particular. It's in general with more, much more broad than that. It is with ideologies that are uh, taken for granted without critical thinking. If you start thinking about things and you realize that you may be wrong, I think that's the very first step toward, toward wisdom. Thank you very much. now have our two 12-minute first rebuttals. You'll recall that in my opening speech, I proposed a specific hypothesis that a personal creator and designer of the universe exists who is the locus of absolute value and has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm astonished that Dr. Piliucci has yielded all but the last point. He admits uh, in tonight's debate that the arguments for personal creator and designer of the universe are sound, 
and uh, he's willing to even grant that he is the locus of absolute value. So the whole debate comes down to whether or not this person has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Now that's astonishing when you think about it, because already those first three arguments for a creator, designer of the universe narrow down the field of the world's religions to Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, so that you've already narrowed it down to those three. And the real question then is the resurrection of Jesus. Now what's surprising about this is that this is the one area in which Dr. Piliucci, as an evolutionary biologist, is the least expert to speak on. And yet this is where he's chosen to stake his camp tonight. So we'll have to see whether or not in fact he can defend that. Now you remember I said there were two questions we need to assess tonight. What is the evidence that falsifies my hypothesis? And second, what is the evidence that verifies it? We've heard no evidence tonight to suggest that the God hypothesis is false. He simply tried to refute my evidence in verification of the hypothesis. So at best, we're left with neutrality. The only question is then whether or not we have good reasons to verify that hypothesis. Now, he did have a few things to say about my argument for objective moral values. He says that um, he agrees now that objective moral values exist. In fact, this is verbal agreement only when you understand what he means by moral values. You see, on a naturalistic worldview, moral values, what we call moral values, are just byproducts of sociobiological evolution. Just as a troop of baboons can exhibit certain cooperative behavior and even altruistic behavior because evolution determines it to be advantageous for them in the struggle for survival, so their primate cousins, Homo sapiens, also can exhibit similar behavior for the same reason. So that on the naturalistic worldview, moral values are really just ingrained patterns of sociobiological evolution. They're not prescriptive moral duties. So as Michael Roos says, morality is an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process, just as are our other adaptations. It has no existence or being beyond this, though it is put on us for good biological reasons. And therefore, as philosophers such as Sartre and Camus saw, in the absence of God-given moral values, each one of us has to decide which moral values uh, we're going to adopt or obey for our own lives. And that leads immediately to relativism and subjectivism. So what do you say to someone who wants to be antisocial? and who denies that human beings have intrinsic moral value. Take, for example, the Nazi Germany, which carried out the Holocaust. In his book, Morality After Auschwitz, Peter Haas points out that far from being contemptuous of ethics, the perpetrators of the Holocaust acted in strict conformity with an ethic that held that however difficult and unpleasant the task might have been, the mass extermination of Jews and gypsies was entirely justified. The Holocaust was possible only because a new ethic was in place that did not define the arrest and deportation of Jews as wrong and in fact defined it as ethically tolerable and even good. Moreover, Haas points out, because of its coherence and internal consistency, the Nazi ethic could not be discredited from within. You need to have an external transcendent vantage point in which to judge these moral systems. Otherwise, as Dr. P. Liucci says, you just get a plethora of local moral systems, none of which can claim to be right and objective and true. Uh, but if you agree with me that the Holocaust was morally abominable, 
that it is really wrong to send people to gas chambers and concentration camps because of their Semitic origin, then you will agree with me that there is a transcendent basis in God for this. Now, Dr. Piliucci also says uh, the Christian God is not moral, and he quotes several passages from Scripture. These are quoted out of context. For example, the passage about punishment was a description of the famine that would be brought on when Jerusalem was destroyed. It had nothing to do with God punishing people. Similarly, the parable from Jesus was taken out of context. That is talking about God uh, giving uh, uh, eternal punishment to uh, those who reject him. It has nothing to do with how we should behave. These passages are entirely ripped out of context. But the more important point is that notice you can't even condemn those acts as being wrong. You can't make those judgments unless you have some kind of an absolute and objective moral code. Otherwise, their local morality is just as good as your local morality. So apart from this transcendent anchor, it's impossible to make these kind of judgments. Moreover, these sorts of attacks are really attacks on the Bible. They're not attacks on the existence of the Christian God. And I'm not going to let the debate tonight get into a debate over biblical inerrancy. So I think fundamentally we've seen that without God, you cannot have really objective moral values. But objective values surely do exist. I think we all know it. And therefore, it follows that God exists. Now, what about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? I pointed out that Jesus claimed to be the absolute revelation of God and that this was verified by his resurrection. Here, Dr. Piliucci asserts, without any evidence, that there were many such messiahs, that the virgin birth and the resurrection are paralleled in pagan mythology. This is completely untrue, as uh, anyone who knows uh, the literature of the ancient world will tell you. The application of mythology to Christianity is simply a category mistake. The Gospels are not of the genre, literary genre, of myth. Rather, the Gospels are closest to the genre of ancient biography. And the Book of Acts, in particular, is a historical writing. Moreover, it's accurate historical writing. A.N. Sherwin-White, who is a Greco-Roman historian, in his book Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament, says the confirmation of historicity in Acts is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. The idea that the Gospels are parallel to myths was an idea back around the turn of the century which is now rejected by New Testament scholarship. Craig Evans, in his article, Life of Jesus Research and the Eclipse of Mythology in 1993, says that there's been a major shift away from mythology as a relevant category to explain the Gospels. Rather, the Gospels are historical writing and need to be understood against the background of Palestinian Judaism, not Greco-Roman mythology. In particular, the resurrection of Jesus is unparalleled in pagan mythology. The uh, myths of dying uh, and rising pagan deities are just symbols of the vegetation cycle. The crops die in the dry season and come back to life in the rainy season. According to David Owen, who is an expert in comparative ancient literature, and I quote, the resurrection, or, there is no parallel to resurrection traditions found in Greco-Roman biography. So pagan mythology is just the wrong interpretive context for understanding the Gospels, and in particular, the resurrection of Jesus. Moreover, Jesus of Nazareth is unique in his claims to have been the absolute revelation of God. There is no prophet 
uh, in ancient Israel that made these sorts of claims. And that's why he got crucified, because they were blasphemous. Now, those claims that belong to the historical Jesus are vindicated by his resurrection. And I presented three lines of evidence for the resurrection. The empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, and the origin of the Christian faith. All of these, and I want to emphasize this, are accepted by the majority of New Testament critics who have written on these subjects. So if Dr. Piliucci tells you otherwise, he's simply not aware of the literature in New Testament studies. For example, let's take the empty tomb. He doesn't deny its historicity, but he tries to explain it away as being a reburial so that the tomb was left empty. But this is utterly implausible because Jesus was interred by the Jewish authorities, by Joseph of Arimathea. So the Jewish authorities would know where the body of Jesus was interred and if it were moved, and they would point to it as the quickest and easiest answer to the Christian proclamation, he's risen from the dead. They would have made the disciples look like absolute idiots because they knew where the body was interred. He says, but what about mass hysteria? Well, mass hysteria doesn't explain an empty tomb. You see, that's hard empirical evidence, and the uh, Jewish authorities themselves couldn't explain uh, how that tomb came to be empty. Second, what about the appearances of Jesus? Well, he compares them to Elvis sightings. Well, now look, Elvis sightings are to be explained in one of two ways. Either they are lies, which I think probably they are, or they're hallucinations. But you can't explain the resurrection appearances by either of those hypotheses. The resurrection appearances were clearly not lies because these people uh, clearly believed in it. They were sincere. No Elvis sighter, I dare say, has been willing to go to a tortuous death in attestation of the belief that Elvis has risen from the dead. <laughs> Neither can they be dismissed as hallucinations. Number one, the diversity of the appearances is too great. They weren't just to one individual at one time under one circumstances, but to multiple persons, groups of people, different circumstances and occasions. Secondly, hallucinations would not have led to believe in Jesus' resurrection, but at best, his assumption into heaven, not the resurrection of Jesus, which, as I explained, goes contrary to Jewish beliefs. Thirdly, it also leaves the empty tomb unexplained. Hallucinations does nothing to explain the empty tomb and is therefore an inadequate hypothesis. Thirdly, what about the origin of the disciples' belief? Here he simply misconstrued the argument. It is not an argument based on the strength of their belief. It is an argument based on the origin of their belief. This belief is utterly un-Jewish and contrary to Jewish beliefs about the Messiah and the afterlife. And therefore it cries out for some explanation of where this originated. Apart from the resurrection itself, I cannot find any antecedent cause that would explain why these people sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. So those are the facts, and I think that the best explanation of them is that they were telling the truth that Jesus was risen. What about the immediate experience of God? He says the brain can be induced to have religious experience. The problem with that argument is the brain can be induced to have experiences of the external world and physical objects. Do we therefore think that the external world is illusory? Does anybody here think that they might be a brain in a vat of chemicals being stimulated by a mad scientist to believe in the external world that you're here in this lecture hall? Obviously not. His argument leads to skepticism. There are certain kinds of properly basic beliefs, like belief in the external world, or I would argue belief in the existence of God, which is grounded in our immediate experience, and unless he can provide a defeater for that belief, we are rational to entertain and to hold that belief as Christians do.
Alhamdulillah, I'm not going to be able to cover all these points, so you, we'll just go in order in, in, in uh, what Dr. Craig said in the last few minutes. Starting with his first remarks, um, again, notice please that most of, of his talk actually does not apply to the Christian God. It's just a general argument for the, for the existence of uh, a variety of gods, and that was not the topic tonight, but I'll, I'll be very glad to debate that with him one other time. Um, so the origin of universe stuff is not relevant. One of the things that I'd like you to notice is that he kept citing uh, Fred Oil. Fred Oil is a, is a cosmologist and astrophysicist. He also got the very unusual distinction of getting a special prize from the British Astronomical Society for the highest number of, of wrong hypotheses proposed in a scientific career, which is unusual. It's a typical British thing to do. I mean, you know, who, who else would give a, a prize of that sort? And they actually meant it seriously because they meant it as, you know, this guy, although he was re repeatedly wrong, he actually spurred a lot of good research um, in order to prove him wrong. Um, now, these are the argument, of course, of the origin of the universe and where they come from. I, just, I still don't understand. I talked to Dr. Craig several times before, and this might be obviously my, my personal limitation, but I don't understand how uh, postulating a God actually solves anything. It seems to me that you fall into one or two traps. You either fall into a, an infinite regress, which he abhors. He said there's no infinity out there, uh, because one can immediately ask, well, who created God? How did that God come about? And then you say, well, there was super God. And how did super God come in? Well, there was super, super God. And, you know, obviously you go on forever. Or he becomes an, all of a sudden an Aristotelian, talking about a position that has been actually not following philosophy for thousands of years at this point. And he tells you that, well, there must have been an original uh, cause that was uncaused. I'm not sure that that actually means anything outside of uh, philosophical mumbo-jumbo, but uh, it is interesting to see that actual quantum physicists have a similar, very similar explanation, except that they can back it up with empirical evidence. They do actually have pretty good theories about how things literally come out of nothing. Um, the fine-tuning of, of the universe, which again is not really that relevant to the discussion tonight, uh, Dr. Craig was referring to the so-called anthropic principle, uh, the idea that the universe is so fine-tuned and the only, the only explanation possible uh, is that uh, it was fine-tuned to, to bring about this debate tonight, for example, and, uh, which is a pretty twisted way of creating a universe, if you ask me. Now, uh, the he played the probability game. I don't have time to get into the probability game, but uh, a very good mathematician and prob probability theorist, Martin Gardner, actually went through these kind of games and defined the anthropic principle as the completely ridiculous anthropic principle, or crap for short. And so I'll leave it at that for, for the anthropic principle. Incidentally, even if... And I'm not granted this at all, but even if science will never find out uh, the origin, you know, a satisfactory answer to the origin of the universe or to the origin of creation or whatever you want to call it, uh, that all amounts to say that we don't know. So what? I mean, Craig seems to think that he wins by default. Ah, you don't know, therefore. Uh, but it doesn't work that way. If we were having this debate 2,000 years ago, uh, Dr. Craig would probably try to convince us all that, that lightning and thunder outside of the hole, which is not happening, uh, would be a, an obvious indication of the fact that Zeus is upset with us, and probably most of us would actually believe it, uh, because there was no uh, theory of atmospheric physics at the time. So all he's making is an argument from ignorance, and uh, one of those things that science is very good is at debunking argument from ignorance. You know, next week, Nature might publish an article explaining to Dr. Craig where did all these things come from. Um, about the objective ma moral values uh, that he equates with the existence of God, I think that, that Dr. Ruse is right uh, when he says that morality is adaptive. Uh, now, Dr. Craig then jumps on and says, well, but, but that makes it an illusion. There's nothing illusory about, about an adaptation. 
my hand is an adaptation, and it's not illusory. If you want to try, I can slap you, and you'll see that it's not. There's nothing illusory about this old this this thing. Also, Dr. Craig used the word. It just means. Uh, you know, just helps uh, survival and reproduction with just in, in, in scare quotes, probably, if we could, if we could have seen uh, the little cartoon coming out of his head. Well, why is that just, that, that survival is such a, uh, and reproduction is such a, a lowly, lowly thing? I mean, it seems to me that if something is important for survival and reproduction of not only human beings, but a variety of species that are related to us, that doesn't make it quite a, 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 a secondary point. Um, survival and reproduction is a lot, it's got a lot to do with the life of um, every living being, including uh, humans. There's this uh, famous cartoon that asks what is the meaning of life, and there are a bunch of different animals, each one of which has a little cartoon on their hand that says, eat, sleep, reproduce, eat, sleep, reproduce, and it moves up to the, the complexity, scale of complexity of, of life, and then it gets to humans, and human, instead of having eat, sleep, reproduce, asking this question, what is the meaning of life? Eat, sleep, reproduce. For example, it's a good beginning. It might not be the end of it, but it's a good beginning. So if we can explain that in terms of, of the value of morality, it seems that that's, that's a lot. Dr. Craig also confuses objectivity with universality. I said that moral, moral beliefs, moral, some moral rules are objective. That does not make them universal, and he seems to confuse these two categories over and over. Then I'll ask a question to Dr. Craig, which I really will genuinely like to have an answer, because I asked this question to several people and I never got a satisfactory answer. Is God um, good by nature, because there is a good that is, in fact, transcends even, even God himself, or is what God wants the good? How do you define that? It seems that you could get in trouble either way, so I'll let you pick, and then maybe we'll come back to that in the, in the, in the rebuttal. About the historical Jesus, uh, there is no consensus of whatsoever uh, about, among historians. You know, New Testament scholars are a very small subset of, of historians, quote-unquote, and they tend to have their own ideological agendas, most, most of them. Plus, there is no consensus at all, and Dr. Craig actually should know better than that, because there's quite a bit of articles that have been written in rebuttal to his own arguments about the historicity of Jesus, and I can provide anybody who wants to email me with plenty of references to that. So that, to me, shows that there is no consensus at all, and so what he's claiming is essentially not correct. Um, let's see, what else do I have here? Okay, I covered this again. Dr. Craig, at the beginning of his rebuttal, said that I granted most of his arguments. I thought he wasn't, he wasn't listening, really. Um, I didn't think that I granted anything at all. But uh, maybe we can go back to the tape and reanalyze the, 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 whole, the whole shebang. Um, Okay. He says that I have not provided any way to falsify the belief in God, or in the Christian God in particular, which, remember, was the topic for, for tonight. I'm not sure what he means to, for, about in terms of falsification. I know what the term means uh, as applied to science and empirical evidence. As applied to um, you know, stories about supernatural beings, it's much less clear. He's fond of quoting that article that I wrote for Skeptic Magazine a few years ago, um, saying that, he quotes me as saying that you can falsify the existence of God, but that's not really what I said. If you had read actually the whole article, you would find that I was saying that you can falsify certain specific uh, claims about the, real, the physicality of the universe, which are found in, in uh, um, biblical or other sacred texts. For example, you can falsify uh, that there was or was, or was not a Noah's flood, uh, or things of that sort. But not the metaphysical claim of the existence of any god, so I'm not sure where he got that one. However, the question I'd like to ask you is, do you need an a positive argument not to believe in, say, leprechauns or Santa Claus? 
Or do I just need to make an argument that whatever reason you provide me for believing in Santa Claus can be debunked pretty easily? You say, hey, I found the, tree, the, the, the toys under the tree last, last Christmas. Yes, but there is such a thing as a toy industry, and actually your father has a credit card, and here is the statement. It shows on your credit card, on your father's credit card. So that's a pretty good explanation of a piece of empirical evidence. Do I really need to, sh to demonstrate that there is no Santa Claus? No, of course I cannot demonstrate that there is no Santa Claus. You cannot demonstrate that there is anything, things that you cannot touch, you cannot see, they don't have any effect on the physical world outside of what, what Dr. Craig was saying. So I don't think that the falsifi uh, falsifiability argument is very strong, in fact, strong at all. Um, he defined morality as an ephemeral product of evolution. Well, let's see. Uh, if uh, we're talking about the kind of moral rules that are common between humans and chimpanzees, that's as ephemeral as six million years. I don't know if you guys have an idea what six million years is, but it's a long time. I don't call that as ephemeral. And it's probably much longer than that because we don't know anything, of course, of the behavior of extinct fossils, uh, fossil species that, that had existed of, uh, right into primates. Now, then he asked, what if you want to be destructively asocial? You can do that and we'll lock you up. I mean, that's, that's why it is wrong to be destructively social, because most people wouldn't go for it, and therefore you're going to be locked up. Why do you think we have prisons um, and, and structures of that sort? Because it is not okay within a society to be destructively social. You can be social in a non-destructive way. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. About the Holocaust, uh, it's interesting that, um, that we keep throwing at each other Hitler here. And, you know, I put it on the slide, and then he said, mentioned the Holocaust and things of that sort. Um, Dr. Craig Duringabo's last debate uh, mentioned, which is available on, on, on uh, both of our websites, actually went so far as claiming that uh, you know, Hitler was a good example of what an atheist belief can actually can do. And he should know better than that, because Hitler was not uh, an atheist at all. As a matter of fact, he was a Christian, was helped by the Catholic Church, um, who notoriously and historically didn't have a particularly high sympathy for the Jews. So I'm not sure where he gets this, this um, Holocaust stuff. Uh, his Holocaust history. But anyway, the Bible does condone genocide in a variety of circumstances and a variety of passages. And those passages that I quoted, plus many more that are available, are not actually taken out of context. But don't trust me or Dr. Craig. Just take your Bible, go home, and read it. Open it, those passages or others that, that you can find easily. And then decide for yourself if, if the, those passages tell you something or not about the morality of biblical beliefs. Um, it is also definitely not true that there were no other messiahs or virgin births or, or, or resurrections or things of that sort uh, that had occurred in antiquity or allegedly occurred in antiquity and they were known to, uh, to, the, Jews, to the Jews at the time of Jesus. This is simply historically false. It's, it's very easy to back up if you pick up any book on mythology. And now of course he says that the Gospels are not... Um, uh, the mythology is not a good parallel and a good tools for, for uh, uh, analyzing the Gospels well because he believes already that the Gospels are in fact an historical document. But this begs the question. The question is, are the Gospels an, an historical uh, document or are in fact a mix and match of different kinds of mythologies with a little more uh, new things invented and put in place? And I suggest that, that the much simpler explanation is in fact the latter. Um, Again, you know, things like the empty, empty tomb and, and uh, the people saw Jesus after, after his death. 
Uh, we have plenty of examples of similar miracles before, during, and after. And I don't see why uh, we should believe one set of miracles and not another. I really don't see any reason for it, and uh, I would like Dr. Craig to tell me something about it. And as I said already in my presentation, it seems to equate the truth of a belief with the willingness to die for that belief, no matter how novel that belief is. There's plenty of people that, have, that all of a sudden are converted to novel beliefs. And by the way, even though the belief in the resurrection was in fact new for the Jews, was not new for many of the surrounding, uh, um, uh, surrounding populations and cultures, which is where they got it from. Thank you. We will now go into the second set of rebuttals, lasting eight minutes for each debater. I think it's remarkable that in tonight's debate we have still yet to hear any evidence to falsify the God hypothesis. In his last speech, Dr. Piliucci said, we don't have to have a positive argument uh, to believe that God doesn't exist. Look at Santa Claus. We don't need a positive argument not to believe in him. I would submit on the contrary. Anytime you make a claim that something doesn't exist, that is a claim to knowledge, and therefore you have a burden of proof to justify it. Scott Schalkowski, in his article in the American Philosophical Quarterly of 1989, makes this point very well. He says, the reason adults disbelieve in Santa Claus is not simply that there is no good reason to think that he exists, but because we have good reasons to think that he does not. So Dr. Piliucci similarly needs to give us good reasons to think that God does not exist. Schalkowski concludes there is no good reason for the presumption of atheism that is prevalent in many Western intellectual circles. I have been unable to find a good argument which places differential burdens of proof on theists and atheists. There is no justification for the current atheistic rage in the absence of atheological apologetics. The absence of such apologetics is quite striking, and it's certainly been striking in tonight's debate. So, do we have then good reasons to verify that hypothesis? Well, I think we do. First, consider the argument from the origin of the universe. Here we did get some argumentation now in the last speech. He says, quantum physics has shown that things can begin to exist without a cause. They can come from out of nothing. That's a total misrepresentation. The quantum vacuum is not nothing. The quantum vacuum is a sea of fluctuating energy endowed with a rich physical structure and governed by physical laws. It is no exception to the principle that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Secondly, I pointed out the universe began to exist, and we've heard no refutation of this point tonight other than an attack on Fred Hoyle's credibility. But Stephen Hawking, in his most recent book, The Nature of Space and Time, says today almost everyone believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. From those two premises, it follows inescapably that therefore the universe had a cause. And all Dr. Piliucci does here is say, well, who created God? The answer is that for something that is timeless and eternal, such as God must be, there, there is no cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause, is the relevant premise. But if something is timeless and eternal, then there, it's impossible for it to come into being. So there isn't any cause for that. Of course, you can't say that about the universe anymore because the universe is shown to have had a beginning. What about the argument from fine-tuning? Here he simply says the anthropic principle is crap, 
And I agree with him because the anthropic principle was an attempt to explain away the need for a designer. So I agree with him on that. The point is he's never been able to show how either law or chance could account for the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the Big Bang, which point to an intelligent designer. Finally, what about objective moral values? Here he says, well, these adaptations like my hands are not illusory. Well, of course not. What Michael Rue said, any meaning beyond there being mere adaptations is illusory. He says, but if you're antisocial, then you might be locked up. Right. Now, see, that only shows that this behavior may be risky. It doesn't show that it's morally wrong. Somebody like a Jeffrey Dahmer didn't do anything wrong. The mistake was they got caught. The enlightened rapist or pedophile will only calculate his actions so that he will rape or attack women and children where there's a high probability that he won't get locked up, that he'll get away from it. That way he can pursue his self-interest and his unbridled passions without having to worry about the social consequences. And that's all that Dr. Piliucci has been able to offer us as to why these actions are wrong. Uh, Richard Taylor is an atheistic ethicist. Listen to what he says. The infanticide practiced by the ancient Greeks did not violate their customs. If we say that it was nevertheless wrong, we are only saying it was forbidden by our ethical and legal rules. And the abominations practiced by the Nazis are forbidden by our rules, but obviously not by theirs. So how can Dr. Piliucci on an evolutionary view condemn the ancient Greeks or the National Socialist Nazis of Germany for having their own local ethic that they thought was fine? Absent God, you cannot condemn these things. Dr. Piliucci says, well, is God good by nature or is the good what God wills? I would say God is good by nature. He says, go read your Bible. Well, at least we do agree on that point tonight. Go read your Bible. So if you think that there are absolute moral values, and I think most of us do, we need God as a transcendent anchor for those. Finally, what about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? He asserts there is no consensus on these issues. What I said is that the majority of scholars who have written on these subjects agree with these three facts. Now, certainly there are others who disagree, but the majority of view is that the empty tomb, the appearances, and the origin of the Christian faith are historical. He says, but there were other messiahs at that time. Sure, there were lots of political messiahs who claimed to be the political liberator of, of, of Israel. But none of these claimed to be the absolute revelation of God, claimed to inaugurate the kingdom of God, to be, in effect, the Son of God himself. In that sense, Jesus of Nazareth was unique. Dr. Piliucci says, well, why believe these miracles rather than others? Simply because there's good historical evidence for these. The empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus, the origin of the Christian faith. He doesn't refute any of these or defend his explanations of them except to repeat himself that uh, the resurrection may have been new for Judaism but not for other cultures. I disputed that in the first place. There are no pagan parallels to the resurrection of Jesus. I defy him to show me one. But secondly, in any case, it is absurd to think that the original disciples believed sincerely Jesus was risen from the dead because of pagan mythology. You have to explain the origin of this belief within a Palestinian Jewish context, and you can't do that without appeal to the event itself. Uh, as for the, uh, the consensus of scholarship, I quote from an article in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, uh, volume 68, uh, in the year 2000. Uh, this is from uh, Mark Allen Powell. He says, the dominant view 
of the passion narratives today is that they are early and based on eyewitness testimony. So the passion narratives, which is the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, and so forth, this is based upon eyewitness testimony. This is historical writing. It's not to be explained through the category of mythology. Finally, as to the immediate experience of God, uh, Dr. Piliucci did not come back on this. My point was that on his epistemology, it leads to utter skepticism because you can induce anything in the brain to, to hallucinate. The fact that there are portions of the brain that are geared toward religious experience no more undermines the veridicality of those experiences than the fact that there are portions of the brain geared for visual or auditory input undermines the veridicality of what you see and hear. He's got to give some independent defeater for thinking that my or Christian experience of God is non-veridical. And in the absence of any defeaters, and we haven't heard any tonight, there have been no reasons to falsify the hypothesis. There's simply no reason why I shouldn't trust my experience of God. He's real to me, and in the absence of a defeater of that, I'm perfectly rational in retaining that belief. Okay, a few more random points in, in sequence that have been presented by Dr. Craig. I won't get to, reject, uh, to refute all of them. Rejecting the existence of something for which there is no reason to believe is an entirely rational thing to do, and you do it every single day. You don't believe in leprechauns, you don't believe, most of you, don't believe in unicorns, you don't believe in the fact that there are invisible uh, people that hold together this table and don't let it fall apart, and all sorts of other beliefs. You just don't have those beliefs. Uh, on the other hand, you cannot prove that there are no leprechauns. You cannot prove that there are no unicorns. You cannot prove that there are no invisible people around here that are holding this table together. Why don't you believe it? Because it's very rational and it's very, very, very logical not to believe things for which there is no evidence if those things require extraordinary leaps of faith, if they violate uh, basic laws of physics and biology with which we all, uh, we're all familiar. Uh, quantum mechanics, we've been throwing quantum mechanics at each other tonight, and the interesting thing is that one of the best physicists who has ever worked on quantum mechanics, Richard Feynman, uh, once said that uh, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics, so there's a good chance that we're both wrong on quantum mechanics anyway. Uh, it would be nice to have a physicist in the... Is there a physicist in the hall? Uh, one. Okay. My, one of my understandings of quantum mechanics, which, I said, as I said, could be wrong, uh, is, for example, that one of the major findings of quantum mechanics is to, exactly to uh, put in question one of uh, Dr. Craig's fundamental arguments, the causality, uh, the cause-effect relationship. There are, in fact, under certain circumstances, quantum phenomena that defy our understanding of, of, uh, of uh, cause and effect. And he says, well, yet the, quantum, the underlying quantum uh, field is not nothing. It's pretty damn close to nothing, and, um, um, especially because nobody understands what actually it is. Uh, you might mischaracterize quite a bit my hallucination argument. Uh, I, it did not point to a total skepticism. I'm certainly not a total skeptic. I'm uh, way up there with uh, philosopher Bertrand Russell, who once said that uh, uh, he will wish philosophers who don't believe in the existence of reality to get into a car and drive straight into a wall at a speed that is proportional to their belief that that wall is not there. 
Um, so I'm definitely a realist from that perspective. My point was simply that there is a simpler explanation, and here is again, uh, the autocrat doesn't seem to understand a basic uh, tenet of not only uh, scientific, but in fact rational thinking. If there is a simpler, much simpler, significantly simpler explanation for a set of, of circumstances, you should go for that one first, unless there is extraordinary evidence that the alternative explanation is actually better. So if somebody tells you that, well, you know, I just, oops, okay, I just hear God talking to me right now, it's much more likely that I'm having an hallucination than that actually God is talking to me right at this moment. That doesn't mean it's impossible that God is talking to me at this moment. Of course, if that were the case, I would immediately change the switch size uh, and go on the other side of this debate. But the point is, it's a matter of what is reasonable. I said right at the beginning of this debate that uh, the point here is what is reasonable, beyond, what is, uh, reasonable to, to, uh, to understand and to believe, uh, not what is true or not true. Neither Dr. Craig nor I actually have any foggy idea of what is true or not true. At least I don't, and I don't think he does either. Um, Adaptation, adaptation is not enough. It's not, uh, it's not good enough for Dr. Craig to, to, to justify moral beliefs, even though they're local in the sense of uh, actually applying to a large variety of species and they're temporal in the sense of applying to, uh, through millions of years of, of history. Well, I don't really think that we need any more than that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, why is it that adaptation is not enough of an explanation? Why is it we are upset? Well, somebody is obsessed with these uh, absolute moral truths. I don't see why we need them. We seem to have a, a good society that works pretty well without them. We never actually follow these, these absolute moral rules anyway. And certainly not, not um, any particular religion, religion um, uh, people that believe to a particular religion actually have followed. Look at the history of Christianity for its, uh, itself, for example. Um, evolution does have a very effective way of condemning things that don't work. Extinction is final. You're out of the game. Uh, so if societies that don't work collapse, uh, individuals that don't have adaptive behaviors eventually get eliminated, or at least their, li their genetic line gets eliminated. So that's the ultimate price to pay, and that is why it's not, there is no such a thing as the perfect crime, and there is no such a thing as the wise rapist. Now, Dr. Craig answered my question about the goodness of God by saying that God is good by nature. Ah, but that means that there is such a thing as the good independently of God and to which God actually conforms himself. But if that's the case, you don't need God to be good. All you need to do is to find another way to find out what good is and follow it. There is no need for an intermediary. And so I'm very glad that he did acknowledge um, uh, that point. Of course, if he had acknowledged the other point, I had a response for that too, but we'll leave that to the next time. Um, Again, it, it insists that absurd, absurd beliefs for which one is, is willing to sacrifice himself are somehow a proof of the fact that those beliefs are correct. I, I really cannot even follow where the, where the logic is. It doesn't matter how novel a belief is and how strong you believe into something that says absolutely nothing about the truth of that belief. There are plenty of people that believe all sorts of things for all sorts of bizarre reasons. There are all, all sorts of people that believe novel things uh, there are people, for example, within our culture that believe things that are not typical of our culture. How many people, you know, maybe somebody here uh, knows of somebody who all of a sudden started uh, being, being a Buddhist. Well, Buddhism is not a set of philosophical beliefs that is, that is typical of American culture and society, not historically and not now. But you can easily find people that actually have switched to that kind of, uh, of belief. So there's nothing uh, exceptional. Uh, or incredible into people all of a sudden embracing a belief that is not typical of their culture. That's, by the way, one of the, the ways in which cultures themselves change over time and evolve over time. And again, the, there is plenty of evidence that there is 
there are people willing to die for the wrong belief, so I don't see how that uh, qualifies. In fact, it seems to me that it's a good idea that if you are willing to die for a, for a belief, not necessarily, but there is a good chance that that belief is actually wrong, or at least that you have that belief for the wrong reasons. Because there are very few things that I think are justify the ultimate sacrifice of, of the life of not only one person, but in fact of entire populations. And uh, that's one of the points that I'm most concerned about with this debate tonight. Uh, the, the idea that people should, uh, should be willing to sacrifice their lives, their, their friends' lives, their families' lives, uh, their entire population, uh, because of some belief uh, for which there is no objective or not reasonable way to, uh, to make an argument in favor. That is a very dangerous thing. It has happened all over the place. It is happening today all over the place. Look at the religious wars or religions-inspired wars that are occurring all the time, including right at this moment in which we're talking, there are, there are people that are being killed in this world because of their beliefs, and uh, that is a, something that is really scary, and it's something that maybe if we start thinking about these things a little more rationally, we might avoid or at least diminish in frequency and occurrence. Thanks. We'll have a five-minute final statement from each debater. In my closing speech, I'd like to draw together the threads of the debate and give some assessment of the arguments. First, have we seen any reasons tonight to falsify the God hypothesis? I think the answer is clearly no. Dr. Piliucci simply says that we reject things due to the absence of evidence. Not always, only sometime. For example, if we were to say, uh, is there an elephant in this room? The absence of any evidence would be a good reason to think there is no elephant in this room. But if someone were to assert there is no flea in this room, would the absence of evidence for the flea be a good reason to think there's not a flea in the room? Well, clearly not. The point is that absence of evidence is evidence of absence only in the case where if the thing did exist, you would expect to have some more evidence of it than what you do. And in the case of God, Dr. Piliucci simply hasn't shown us that if God did exist, that we would expect to have more evidence than such as I've laid out tonight. He says, well, what about other things like leprechauns? They violate the laws of physics and biology. Exactly, that's my point. You have positive reasons to not believe that those things exist. But in the case of God, this doesn't violate the laws of physics and biology. We've had no good reason tonight to think that the God hypothesis is false. On the contrary, any evidence that's been given tonight has been on the side of verifying this hypothesis. First, I argued that God best explains the origin of the universe. And all Dr. Piliucci could do in his last speech was appeal to the quantum vacuum as being close to nothing. Let me quote from Bernhard Kanitscheider, a German philosopher of science, on this. Vacuum fluctuation models, he says, are far from being a spontaneous generation of everything from naught. The origin of that embryonic bubble is really a causal process leading from a primordial substratum with a rich physical structure to a materialized substratum of the vacuum. This process includes that weak kind of causal dependence peculiar to every quantum mechanical process. So it is simply false that quantum mechanics gives us any uh, idea of the origin of something out of nothing, and yet that's what the atheist has to say about the Big Bang if he denies that God exists. With regard to the fine-tuning of the universe, uh, he hasn't come back 
On that point, it's preposterous to think that this finely tuned universe just popped into being out of nothing, replete with these conditions requisite for the existence and evolution of intelligent life. Third, objective moral values. He says adaptations are enough. Well, now, they might be enough to govern a society, but that's not my argument. My argument is that these objective values do exist, that we do apprehend them, and therefore it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. My argument is not an argument that you need God to have a working society. He says, well, if the good is independent of God, then we don't need God. No, what I said is that God's nature is good. God is good by nature. The good is the character of God himself. God is by nature loving, holy, fair, just, and so forth. And this expresses itself to us in the form of commandments, which become our moral duties. So there's no dilemma here. God's nature is the good. But notice on his view, we are lost in sociocultural relativism without any grounding for moral values. What about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? He couldn't deny the facts of Jesus' radical personal claims or the empty tomb or the appearances of Jesus. All he could do is repeat that people believe weird and novel things. But again, the point is that within Judaism, the disciples confronted with the, with the crucifixion of Jesus would probably at most have preserved their master's tomb as a shrine, where his bones would reside until the resurrection at the end of the world. They wouldn't have come up with this absurd and un-Jewish idea that he was already risen from the dead. So any historian who is responsible studying the historical Jesus has to give some explanation of the origin of that belief, and Dr. Piliucci hasn't been able to do that tonight. Finally, the immediate experience of God. He says there's a simpler explanation, namely that there is no God. But look, it's a simpler explanation to say there is no external world either. The external world is fantastically complex. Why posit it? Well, simply because we trust our experiences in the absence of a defeater. And we haven't heard any defeaters tonight for why I should deny or distrust my experience of God. In conclusion, I want to say simply that I myself wasn't raised in a Christian family or a church-going family, but I, as a teenager, began to ask the questions about the meaning of life. I began to read the New Testament, and as I did so, I found an experience of God there that changed my life. And I want to invite you to simply do the same thing. When you go home tonight and you're lying in bed, before you go to sleep, ask yourself, could there be a God who exists, who loves me, and has revealed himself in Christ, and begin to read the New Testament as I did. It could change your life in the same way that it did mine. Thank you. Okay, a few final words. It seems to me that Dr. Craig tried five arguments tonight, and I won't repeat them because we went both over them several times. The conclusion seems, uh, the following conclusions seem reasonable to me. Three of these arguments do not apply to the existence of the Christian God, so he's missed the point entirely over there, and they're essentially irrelevant to our discussion tonight. If now we wanted the last minute to, to, uh, to broaden this, this discussion to a more generalized kind of God, I'd be happy to do that. I've answered some of those arguments, but this was not what we were studying tonight. Those three arguments are no reason whatsoever to believe in the Christian God in particular. Uh, one argument, his last argument, is not even an argument by his own admission, so we can discard that one as well. 
So essentially, he's left here to talk to you for almost an hour, telling you to believe in miracles. That's, that's his only argument. And I think that that's a pretty weak argument, especially because a lot of other religions can claim miracles. And they are equally convinced, as any Christian is, that their miracles are true, are correct, are empirically verifiable, historically verifiable, and so on and so forth. So who is right? Are you sure you picked the right one? Uh, miracles, the argument about miracles has been debunked very thoroughly, much better than I could ever do, uh, by David Hume back in the 18th century, and it's pretty surprising to me that people like Dr. Craig still use that kind of argument as their uh, main, main defense of, of theism. Um, I think the better thing you could do is simply to go out there and read Hume by yourself. It's not that difficult, and in fact, it's actually pretty entertaining. Now, he says, how about unicorns violate the laws of biology? So that's positive evidence that they don't exist. Well, by the same reason, you want to know a list of the laws of physics and biology that are violated by any religious claim to miracles? It's a long list. So by that argument, then, we have a perfectly good reasons to reject that kind of belief. Um, notice that we keep throwing at each other this quantum mechanical stuff, and I hope you guys are really confused about it because that's the way it should be. Um, quantum mechanics is very confusing. But notice that he quoted, quoted a philosopher of science on quantum mechanics, not a physicist. Now, I'm, as, I said, as the moderator said in the beginning of this debate, I am pursuing a, a degree in philosophy, so I have the utmost respect for philosophers. I don't want to insult any philosopher present in, in here. On the other hand, I also know, and I have read several papers by philosophers of biology, and I can tell you that I can find plenty of mistakes and misunderstandings of biology in those writings, so I wouldn't really put particular faith in what a philosopher of, of science says about quantum mechanics. Again, remember Feynman's saying that not even physicists really understand what they're talking about when it comes to quantum mechanics. Objective values do exist. Local objective truths do exist. And they exist for a very good reason, because they evolved in order to permit certain social animals to have a social structure and to, have and to, and to proliferate. It seems to me that this pretty good argument, and it's a pretty good explanation of why we have objective moral truths, and also why we have this intuitive understanding that there are moral truths out there. Incidentally, Dr. Craig is one of the few philosophers left that doesn't take this position. A lot of moral, moral ethicists today actually accept this kind of view, that moral beliefs and moral, moral rules actually evolved and are adaptive, and of course they do change over a certain period of time, and to some extent, given certain circumstances. But that's just life. Uh, therefore, I am in no way em uh, embracing any social cultural relativism whatsoever. I'm just not a social cultural relativist, and I'm sick and tired of people accusing me of just because I don't believe in a, in a, in a universal set of uh, beliefs that then therefore anything goes. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, anything goes only in the, in the song by Cole Porter, and that's about it. Um, about the historicity, you know, we've been talking about uh, the historicity of certain claims. You know, historians and historical sources are really funny things. You should, it, it, history is fascinating. Uh, I'm sure most of you have had my same experience of a pretty boring subject matter in, in school. But in fact, it's a fascinating subject matter. There are all sorts of bizarre things that historical sources claim. For example, many of the historians, of the Roman historians at the time, uh, that were alive before and after, and after Jesus, make all sorts of interesting claims, such as that several emperors were taken to heaven in golden chariots. Now, why are we not to believe that kind of, uh, of statement? It comes from a similar kind of source that the, uh, to those that Dr. Craig has actually pointed out tonight. Now, let me finish with a positive point. I think that tonight, 
uh, when you go home, instead of, of uh, doing whatever Dr. Craig suggested you should do, you should go to sleep. You deserved it. It's, it's been a long evening. We still have questions and answers to come, and it's going to be very interesting. You've got plenty to think about. On the other hand, what you should do tomorrow morning or the day after or the day after is to go to the library. Go to your public library or go to your university library and start read. And never stop. Read and think about these things until your last day. You probably will come up with a better understanding of what we're talking about here. Probably better than our own here tonight. Thank you. I notice that a lot of people are sort of fanning. It's kind of warm in here. I suggest that I'm going to do it. Uh, you might want to re remove a, a coat, nothing more, <laughs> uh, to be uh, somewhat comfortable. Uh, and uh, uh, we're going to start the questions in a few minutes, and I want to sort of go back over that. Let me make one remark as the moderator. Uh, I think you've heard uh, a presentation uh, on the left uh, of what could be called classical supernatural theism. Uh, on the right, uh, I think you could claim that you have heard a presentation of classical uh, non-theistic naturalism. And by a simple logical principle, uh, both of these positions can't be true but both might be false. And there may be a third alternative. And I've got it. Should we start worshiping you now or? The third alternative is non-supernaturalistic theistic naturalism. Believe it or not, that's a position. Uh, now, at any rate, in terms of the questions, folks, if you're a member, uh, anyone who wants to raise a question uh, of Professor Craig, uh, come over here. And we want to uh, go through this rather carefully. Uh, anyone who has a question of Professor Pilucci comes over here and addresses a question to the microphone. Uh, remember, the rules on this would be 30 seconds per question, no more. And I will be sort of watching that rather carefully, hopefully. Uh, and uh, then there will be uh, a uh, response to the question uh, of the person to whom the question is asked. And then uh, the opposite side will give a one-minute response to uh, either the question or the response to the question. So uh, I got confused. Okay, go ahead. You, you, words, you got it. You got it? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so anyway, we'll try to do it uh, along those lines. Uh, so we'll start, uh, we will start off in the order uh, since Professor Craig went first, we'll have the first question to him. And the second question will be to Professor Pilucci. Also, folks, when I begin to see that uh, people are falling out in the aisles from tiring, being tired, I will probably uh, try to end the questions unless uh, things get extremely exciting and everybody wakes up.
Much of your argument dealt with uh, the resurrection story in the Bible. I've read it. I'm sure a lot of us have. Um, but what the early writers there saw, apparently what they saw, and they wrote in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they wrote a different story of what they saw. And these are not just sequential problems, but they're problems like with the number of angels. Mm-hmm. Who was there at the resurrection? Where did they see Jesus the first time? What the angel said? I don't think I'd forget what an angel said. And... Uh, they're not just with a chain of events. If the resurrection really happened, why is there such a different story in each of the Gospels? It's important to understand that we're not debating tonight about biblical inerrancy. And so I'm not uh, at all bothered by the fact that there would be inconsistencies or contradictions in the accounts or even that some of the accounts might be false. The task of the critical historian or the New Testament scholar is to sort through the accounts to try to use objective criteria of historiography to find the historical core of the narrative. And the three facts that I mentioned tonight represent the historical core of those narratives. Notice that my facts didn't include things like the number of angels at the tomb or the names of the women or the order of the appearances and things of that sort. Those are secondary details that scholars can disagree with and talk about. But... What I'm pointing out is that when you use the ordinary canons of historiography, you can establish that there is a historical core to these narratives, which is historically well-established and which suffices to provide an inductive basis for inferring the resurrection of Jesus. So I look at debates over biblical inerrancy and so forth as being an in-house debate among Christians. It's not necessary or relevant to my argument tonight for the historicity of the resurrection. Um, it seems to me that uh, yeah, Dr. Craig wants to stay away from biblical inerrancy because he does not know that, that uh, there's a big problem there. But at the same time, he wants his arguments to be based on truth of the historical record. And now what is the historical record? It is the Bible. So it seems to me that he wants his cake and he wants it to too. By, saying, um, uh, by the same token, uh, he says, well, we should focus on just the, the, the uh, core uh, that is common to all the stories in the Gospels. Yeah, but by the same kind of reasoning, then we should all believe in UFOs because there is a consistent core of things that people that believe in UFOs actually do share in their stories. Uh, but I hope that most people in this room actually know better than believe that kind of thing. So if, just because there is a core uh, set of, of, uh, of uh, congruences in certain stories, that doesn't make them true at all. It all means it only means that either people copy from each other's story or they copied from some other source. In both the case of Christianity and the UFOs, we know that that's the situation. In the case of Christianity, uh, the Gospels were copied from each other to some extent, and in the case of UFO stories, it goes the same way. Okay, question over here. Okay. Uh, since women that believe in God are less likely to have abortions, does that mean that natural selection will result in a greater number of believers than non-believers? I would like to question that empirical claim. I'd like to know where you got that, uh, because it seems uh, hard to believe. Do you have a source for that? No, I don't. It's an assumption. So. You, are, you are a very logical debater, and uh, I am not practiced in logic. That's, that's okay. Seems like you answered your own question. Well, that is a very, that, that is a very intriguing question. Uh, it, it would seem probably that... Folks who believe in God, I mean, just in, in this country at least, Muslims and, and, and evangelical Christians, Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, I think he's right. They have moral objections to abortions 
that many non-Christians don't. Right, but there's, so, but there's no, plenty no, wait, of evidence. So, so he's pointing out that they would tend to propagate more children than the unbelievers would, and that therefore the unbelievers are sort of shooting themselves in the foot, you know, by... You know, remember that the believers also have other things that increase their fitness quite a bit. For example, go out there and propagate any time, any time you have the occasion for it. So that's a pretty adaptive trait out there. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Okay. Uh, Mr. Craig, you, uh, one of the statements you use to support your claim that we know that an injective morality exists is that there is, uh, and use these words, there is something deep within us. Yeah. There's uh, this, uh, I'm going to go ahead and call it an element. An element, uh, I'm going to dub that element X. <laughs> Can you show, uh, sir, that it is impossible for that element to, uh, to have been an adaptive trait of evolutionary origin? I don't need to show that in order for this argument to work. It's very important to understand, and this didn't come out in the debate tonight, that the evolutionists' assumption that because moral values evolve, that therefore they are non-objective, is a classic case of what philosophers call the genetic fallacy. That is to say, trying to invalidate an idea by showing how the idea originated. Our gradual and fallible apprehension of moral values no more undermines the objectivity of those values than our gradual and fallible apprehension of the physical world undermines the objectivity of the physical world. So that even if it's true that the way we come to apprehend moral values is through, say, social conditioning and evolution and things like that, that does nothing to undermine the objectivity of those, those values. So I wouldn't need to show that, much less need to show that it's impossible. So I think that the sociobiologist just commits a, a classic case of the genetic fallacy here. My argument, rather, is simply to appeal to your moral intuition. What I'm saying is that there's no more reason to deny the objective realm of moral values than there is to deny the objective reality of the world of physical objects. Any argument that you could give to be skeptical about your moral intuitions I could give a parallel argument why you should be skeptical about your sensory intuitions. And it would lead to skepticism about, say, the external world of the reality of the past. So if it's rational to trust our sensory intuitions that there is a world of physical objects, I think in the same way it's rational to trust our moral intuitions that there is an objective realm of moral values. And I do think that most of us grasp that. I just invite you to explore your moral experience and see if you don't find that true as well. Time. Um, I would like to ask Dr. Craig, how does he know that there are moral universal truths out there? Where, where is he reading those things? They're not written in the sky. Of course, he would say that they're written in the Bible, but we've seen that the Bible says all sorts of interesting things, not many of which are necessarily moral. Uh, it makes a big deal out of, of the intuition thing. And intuition is important. It's a fundamental uh, component of the way in which human beings think. But intuition is also very fallible. Let me give you an example. Uh, most gamblers have the intuition that they could beat the system. They go out there and, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring the house down and I'm going to go home rich. And as you know, very few of them actually succeed. And the main reason is that they don't succeed is because their intuition was wrong. And the reason their intuition was wrong and led to the ruin is because they didn't do their homework. They didn't understand the laws of probability, 
which is something that in this debate has cropped up a couple of times, and they did not understand the basic, basic laws of, of the physical world. I suggest that it's a good idea to try to understand the laws of the physical world before making these kind of big decisions. Okay. Uh, question over here. Dr. Pellucci, what is your opinion on the claim of the empty tomb? If Jesus never rose, then the disciples would have known that they were spreading a lie. Either they knew that the body had been stolen, or they were just making up a story. I agree that there is nothing extraordinary about dying for a belief, but there is something to be said about dying for what is known to be a blatant lie. You talk of probability versus possibility. What are the chances that 11 men would be willing to give their life and death to a lie? If the body had been... If the body... If it was merely a story... I think I got the gist of it. Um, well, actually, there are plenty of people that, that die for blatant lies. In, uh, for example, a bunch of criminals would uh, lie to the system and risk their life in order to gain something. So uh, it's not that easy. It's not that, that clear-cut. It seems to me, however, that the fundamental point about the resurrection is that there are other explanations. One of them, as you suggested, was that somebody was lying. And not necessarily everybody, by the way. It could have been just one person pulling the trick. Just one person could have taken the body and taken it away, and then everybody else would have believed. I mean, how many times we have these kind of examples with miracles today? Uh, there are miracles allegedly going on all over the planet, and there are all sorts of people that believe them. And in, in, most, in a lot of cases, they turn out to be frauds, but not frauds perpetrated by, by hundreds of people or thousands of people. Usually it's just one person for whatever reason, uh, sometimes just for the heck of it. Um, that pulls this kind of stuff and people fall for it. I mean, you wouldn't believe the number of things that people believe that, that, are, that, are, not, that are not rational and not based on evidence. There are also other explanations. I mean, there are, there are all sorts of reasons why people would like to start a new religion. Uh, uh, was it Ron Hubbard who started Scientology? said that the, one of the best ways to make money in the United States today is to start a new religion. And you should know. He, he studied one and he succeeded pretty well in Scientology. Um, there are all sorts of also psychological reasons, not necessarily personal, personal gain or finance. Uh, there is all sorts of reasons why people can lie or can be deceived. But interestingly, there are also all sorts of interesting uh, evidence from neurobiology that people are very good at self-deception. If you really want to believe something, uh, you, you, I can give you all the evidence to the contrary, and you still believe whatever you want to believe. Uh, this is a very common pr uh, phenomenon that, uh, that fortunately or unfortunately is part of, of, of the human brain, and there is, doesn't seem to be much of a way around it. The point is, these are simple explanations that invoking a huge leap of faith and say, well, you know, I don't believe any of this is, 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 uh, these naturalistic explanations there was a supernatural being there. It's a big one. The reason, the reason that I present the evidence for the resurrection fourth in my list of arguments is because once you've already established the existence of a creator and designer of the universe who is the locus of absolute value, then the idea that he has intervened decisively in history becomes much more plausible and the appeal to a miraculous explanation is much more plausible because you know that such a being exists. Now, no New Testament historian today tries to explain these empty tomb or appearance stories or the origin of the Christian faith as a result of lies or conspiracy. All of these conspiracy theories cannot take seriously what a catastrophe the crucifixion was for these men. It wasn't just that Jesus was dead. The crucifixion, according to Old Testament law, showed that Jesus was literally accursed by God and therefore couldn't have been who he claimed to be. Moreover, they had no idea of, the, of a resurrection within history prior to the end of the world, so that they couldn't be deceiving themselves or, or lying about this. It was completely contrary to any Jewish expectations they might have had. Time. Next question.
Dr. Craig, you said that uh, belief in God could be a properly basic belief. Mm -hmm. Could you please explain what you mean by properly basic and explain why some beliefs might be considered properly basic, whereas other beliefs might only illegitimately be considered properly yes. basic? Yes. And then could you also explain what then is the relationship between positive arguments and the evidence you're giving to belief in God if it's already a properly basic okay. belief anyway? You must be a philosophy student, right? Okay, I thought so. <laughs> uh, he recognizes these sort of code words like proper, proper basicality. You see, not everything that we believe rationally can be based on argument or, or evidence. Because there are certain beliefs that epistemologists call properly basic beliefs, which are simply foundational to knowledge. Things like belief in the reality of the external world, belief in the reality of the past, belief in other minds. There's no way to prove these things. There's no way to prove you're not a brain in a vat being stimulated by a mad scientist to think you're here in this lecture hall tonight. Rather, these are properly basic beliefs, but they're not arbitrary because they are appropriately grounded in our experience. And in the absence of a defeater of those experiences, we are entirely rational in believing in these properly basic beliefs as grounded in that experience. Now, my argument is that belief in God can similarly be properly basic, grounded in the immediate experience of knowing God in the way that the Bible describes, having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The relation of proper basic, properly basic beliefs to argument would be that even though I myself hold this belief in a properly basic way, Nevertheless, in trying to show to some other person that this belief is true, I can't just appeal to my experience, so I will appeal to external argument and evidence to show that person that this belief is true. So you can know that God exists in a properly basic way by experiencing God immediately, and you can show God exists through the arguments and evidence that we've talked about tonight. So I see these arguments and evidence as, as being confirmatory of the properly basic belief in God that is grounded in the experience of God. Don't you love philosophy? Um, <laughs> properly basic beliefs are, in fact, a legitimate uh, uh, argument and, and topic of philosophical discussion. And I would certainly agree that the belief in, uh, in the reality and physicality of the world is a basic proper uh, belief. I am a very strong believer in the reality of the world. I really don't think that you guys are all a, a figment of my imagination. I would have a pretty twisted imagination to find myself here tonight debating this kind of stuff with an imaginary audience. The point is, however, that one of the reasons this is a, a, a so-called properly basic belief is because unless you're crazy in a serious way, everybody on the planet shares this kind of belief. And if you don't share that kind of belief, again, you can, you can jump into Bertrand Russell's car and drive into the famous wall that I was mentioning before. The point we've got, on the other hand, is there's plenty of people, and we're talking about uh, in the tens of millions at these points, or hundreds of millions, that don't share that proper basic belief. So what makes think, uh, uh, Craig uh, think that this is a proper basic belief is beyond uh, my imagination. Okay. Uh, let me just mention one thing uh, here at this point. Uh, if you have asked a question already, uh, I will ask you uh, not to ask another one in the interest of time. So... Uh, a question. And he's keeping track. He's, he's got little pictures over there of everybody who's <laughs> asked the question. 
Mr. Pagliucci, uh, you posited that you didn't have the foggiest idea of what truth is. You also posited that Mr. Craig didn't have the foggiest idea of truth either. Either, I'll let him defend his own knowledge, but I assume that you were attempting to posit a truth. How did you come to this truth if you don't have the foggiest idea of what it is? Mm. I don't think I said the foggiest idea. I have a foggy idea of what <laughs> truth is. Uh, my point was that neither Craig nor I nor anybody else here knows for sure what, what the truth is out there about a lot, a lot of things. I mean, we probably all know, as I said, that there is a physical reality here. This is a truth that we all share. Uh, I think that's true. I cannot prove it to you. I mean, it's, it's as much as the idea of a mad scientist uh, brain, playing with my brain in, uh, in, uh, in a vacuum is uh, unbelievable. It is possible. It is not logically uh, possible to, to, to dis dispute it. So, I'm sorry? He didn't. I know. He thinks he knows. I think he's wrong. Uh, the, the point is... The point seems to me that, the, um, that it's much more reasonable, uh, both in terms of empirical evidence and in terms of, of logical reasoning, for a lot of truths, and, spe and especially for the kind of truth that we're talking about here tonight, the existence or non-existence of a supernatural being. Uh, it seems much more reasonable to me to uh, assume a position, a tentative position. My position is, I don't think so, but I'm willing to consider the opposite evidence. Dr. Piliucci's view sounded like it was self-contradictory. I think that's what the questioner was getting at. But I think what he's really saying is that he does believe there is objective truth out there. But he's just saying that we're not certain, that certainty is hard to get at. And I'd agree with that. Sure, that's right. There are some things that we feel very certain of, other things that we only think are probably true. And I think it's important that you don't go away with the impression that I'm suggesting that my arguments are based on premises which are certainly true. In order for an argument to be a good argument, the premises just have to be more probably true than their negations. And in the case of the arguments I've given tonight, I think that they meet that standard. No, I'm not certain that they're true, but I think they're more probably true than, than their negations, and therefore I think these are good arguments for God. Okay. Next question, please. Uh, Dr. Craig, um, in response to the microseizure argument, uh, which seems to be a good falsifying evidence, here's another way to explain visions of God. You said that once we accept that stimulating the brain can give us experience, we're skeptics instantly, and, you know, we've lost the real world. So is neuroscience a waste of time? No, no. I, I think you misunderstood, but it's certainly not a waste of time. What I'm just suggesting is that on the Christian view, we are composites of soul and body. I, I'm not a Cartesian type of dualist. I think there is a kind of dualism interactionism between the soul and the body. So I'm not at all surprised by the fact that there would be portions of the brain that would be involved in a religious experience, just as there are portions of the brain that are involved in auditory experiences or visual experiences or, or, or olfactory experiences. Uh, when you think about it, since we are soul-body composites, of course the brain would be involved in these sorts of experiences. What I'm just suggesting is that showing that the brain has portions of it that are involved in these experiences does absolutely nothing to show that the experiences are not veridical. Uh, if you say just because something is, is involved in the brain, therefore that experience is non-veridical or illusory, then you do launch into this skeptical argument that ultimately will destroy all knowledge. So 
No, neuroscience helps us to understand the functioning of the human organism, which we are, and it can certainly be helpful in helping to remedy mental disease and uh, other pathologies, and in that sense, it's, it's wonderful. I, I mean, this is fantastic. But we, we mustn't overestimate what it proves. People who think that by showing some physical correlate in the brain that therefore that experience is non-veridical are just making a huge leap in logic that doesn't follow. You've got to give some reason for thinking that that experience is non-veridical. It seems to me that the, the huge leap of, uh, is, is on the other side, but of course that's been the theme all night. Um, what the hallucinations or seizures uh, data actually show is interesting. And it is they are the only naturalistic explanation that we have of people actually having those kind of experiences. The only other alternative is that they're actually really listening to God or, or talking to God and things of that sort. And that is a very extraordinary claim. So my point was simply to use uh, Dr. Craig's uh, words of a few minutes ago, that the seizures, hallucination, and things of that sort are simply a much more probable explanation for that same uh, phenomenon. And that if he, does, if he wants to negate that, then he has the burden of proof to come up with very convincing evidence that, in fact, we need to reject a naturalistic explanation of those experiences and go for a supernatural one. Your re uh, request for a show of hands for quantum physicists drew me out of the balcony. <laughs> I want to take you to task a little bit on this question that quantum mechanics provides some sort of physical basis for creation out of nothing. Uh, I think that's a distortion. You used as an example a lectern or a body being comprised mostly of nothing. But mm -hmm. the way... Uh, empty space, I said. Okay. Well... Uh, Which is not nothing. Okay. Well, we need to be careful yeah. on how we, we define terms. The, the wave function has finite values throughout space, and the chemical interpretation is that there are widely varying charge Time. distributions, but uh, there's certainly not question, nothing. Please. My question is, how he, would he respond to this objection? Right, they're not nothing. As I said, I did say at one point during the debate that the, the quantum fluctuations of the quantum field is not nothing. It's damn close to nothing, uh, but it is not. Now, the question is, why would that be relevant to the, to the, to the debate tonight? Uh, as I said before, I did not say that, that, uh, uh, that there was nothing in the table, I said that there was mostly empty space, and that seems to be a correct interpretation of, of modern physics, that physicists that I talk to seem to agree with that. But we can have that, that debate uh, another time. The, the point is, why is it that somebody wants to make a leap from saying, uh, well, we have some kind of explanation of naturalistic explanations of, the origin, say, the origin of the universe, for example, in this case, but that's not enough. I need something more because all that the Big Bang tells me, all the quantum mechanics tells me, is how the universe originated. It doesn't tell me, as uh, Dr. Craig put it this morning uh, on a radio show that we were both guests on, uh, it doesn't tell me why there is something in, in, instead of nothing. Well, we don't have a scientific answer to why there is something instead of nothing. Uh, we might never have an, ex an explanation to that. Um, the answer might simply be, why not? Uh, or the answer might simply be, that's the wrong question. The, the, sense is, the question may be completely meaningless, and we don't know that that's not the case. But the most convincing argument, seems to me, is the fact that, um, that the answer that Dr. Craig gives doesn't add anything as an explanation to why the universe is out here. Just saying that there is an unmoved, uncaused 
cause of some sort in an Aristotelian fashion explains absolutely nothing. It sounds pretty good as philosophical mumbo-jumbo, but that's all it is. Uh, there is no additional uh, explanatory power that is added by the fact that you say, well, God did it. And as I said before, it's also, this also amounts essentially to an argument for ignorance. Uh, Dr. Craig seems to think that he wins by default. If, uh, if uh, we don't have the answer, we don't have a scientific answer to something, then, uh, then God did it. I find that completely unsatisfactory, regardless of, of quantum mechanics or not. Time, please. Well, I hope you saw that that was an utter distortion of the first argument that I gave. That first argument is a deductive argument so that the conclusion follows inescapably if you grant the premises. Now, the first premise, whatever begins to exist has a cause, seems to me obvious. Something can't come out of nothing. So the question is, did the universe begin to exist? And I gave philosophical and scientific evidence for that. And the scientific evidence, I'm not appealing to ignorance here. On the contrary, my appeal is to precisely what we do know on the basis of current science. And what we do know is that the universe began to exist in, in this Big Bang event, and that prior to the Big Bang, there was nothing and that therefore you, you cannot explain it by any sort of physical process, especially a quantum mechanical process, because quantum mechanics doesn't appeal to nothingness in the vacuum. So you are forced beyond the universe to a transcendent cause, which is timeless, changeless, immaterial, and personal. It's a, it's a sound deductive argument, I think. Question? One of the attributes of the Christian God is that God is perfect. And one of the objections raised to that is that if God is perfect, why, is, you know, why did he de design a universe with so many imperfections and, yeah. and, and whatnot? And the response often is, is that how do we know that um, what we think is perfect is what he would think is perfect? So my question is, um, that would lead me to think that the proposition that God is perfect is non-falsifiable. Is is that proposition falsifi falsifiable? And if so, what would be a falsifiable what would be an observation that would falsify it? All right, you said a number of things. Let me first deal with the argument because I thought Dr. Piliucci would bring this up tonight. The argument seems to go like this: Premise one: If a divine designer exists, plants and animals would have optimal design. Premise two: Plants and animals do not have optimal design. Three: Therefore, a divine designer does not exist. Now, the weakest premise in this argument, I think, is clearly the first, and Dr. Piliucci has never given any argument as to why, if a divine designer exists, plants and animals have to have optimal design. It seems to me that a, a designer is free to make whatever kind of creatures he wants. An automotive engineer can design a Ford Fiesta or a Lexus. He's free to do what he wants. God could even choose to use evolution to create living creatures, in which case you would expect to see these sorts of uh, things. What I found in our last debate was that Dr. Piliucci's belief in this first premise is actually based on a faulty theological inference. He thought that because Christianity says that God is perfect, that therefore the world is perfect. But neither the Bible nor Christian theology has ever made this sort of implication. And in fact, I think the idea of a perfect animal or a perfect plant is probably an incoherent idea. The second thing I'd want to say is I think the second premise is also false. Optimality in design always involves a compromise of competing factors or variables. And in Dr. Piliucci's examples that he uses, like the human eye or human metabolism or uh, other things, overall optimality is achieved 
even if optimality in one respect is constrained by other respects and needs that the organism has. For example, I can show you some wonderful articles on how the optimal design of the vertebrate eye necessitates having the blood vessels and the nerves in front of the retina in order to supply massive quantities of oxygen for high acuity in the mammalian eyes. Uh, so it's not a design flaw at all. So I think this wow. argument is, is just invalid, or, or, or it's unsound. It's got two false premises. Um, it seems to me that it is true that a designer is free to design whatever they, he wants. Uh, for example, an engineer is free to design bridges that keep collapsing and then will fire him because he's not a good designer. Uh, and it seems to me that there can be quite a bit of, of argument that can be made, on, on the other hand, that this universe is just not particularly well designed. And I'm not talking just from a point of view of, of pure, simple engineering of biological systems. I'm talking about um, the, the uh, number of natural catastrophes and things of that sort that, 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 are, that affect humanity, for example. It just seems like a bad design. As Bertrand Russell put it, if I had 20 billion years and infinite powers and came up with this, I should be ashamed of myself. Um, also, Dr. Craig, very interestingly, I think, pointed out the compromise, necessity of compromise when you design something between competing factors. Well, that's true for a human engineer, but remember that God actually chose the competing factors themselves. So either he was shooting himself in the foot by, by picking some factors that then led to a bad design, or he did the bad design on purpose. And either, either way, it just doesn't seem like um, a particularly convincing designer. Okay. Let me... Uh... Uh, stop here for just one second, folks. Uh, I've got 20 minutes of 10 right now. That means we've been two hours and 10 minutes. Uh, if it's all right with you, we t uh, chatted. Uh, if we have about 10 more minutes, all right. Uh, I think that would be about the time to uh, stop questions. Uh, although we could go till midnight with the number of people standing around, and I apologize for that. It's been a very good discussion, but I think time constraints need to be watched in some sense. So. Next question over here. Dr. Piucci, can you uh, explain what you mean by uh, universal morality versus objective morality? Yes, a universal morality would be a code of, of moral rules that applies regardless of time uh, period of, of location in space and uh, conditions of any sort, biological, cultural, or otherwise. Uh, a local objective truth is a truth that applies to certain conditions in a certain environment and possibly in a certain particular kind of, of, of space. I think that the latter exists. I don't think that the former, I don't see any evidence for the former. Yeah, I don't think this distinction makes sense um, because the, the local morality that he talks about is just a pattern of behavior that has been ingrained into the organism by sociobiological development. And so I don't see that there's anything moral about it. Morality is prescriptive, not just descriptive. And what he suggested as local objective morality is merely a description of behavior patterns that sociobiological evolution ingrains into us. And I think that it's evident this isn't objective because if you were to say, run the film over again, uh, start the initial conditions up again and let evolution proceed, you might evolve a totally different set of moral values in that locale, totally different mores or, or creatures, so that it shows that it's not really objective. These are just habit patterns that biology and sociology have laid on us 
they're not objective moral duties. Actually, since I have some time left for my reply, let me reply to that. I think that's a mischaracterization of, of the uh, argument that I was making. Uh, that kind of morality is prescriptive in the sense that I showed at one point in one slide that you can actually come up with very, pretty objective and pretty sophisticated mathematical models to predict which conditions, which kind of mo uh, rules will actually work and which kind of rules will not work. That is prescriptive. It's not just a description of what's out there. Uh, the description come in, comes in. Why, um, why, should, why should an organism obey those instincts? That as I said before, extinction is final. That's why you should obey okay, that. Yeah, see, that's, that's just practical. That, that's not... Uh, Most that's of not the world a, is. Yeah, but morality... Next is question. All right. <laughs> One of these days, we should have a counterpoint like this for two hours. And yeah, see what no, we get. really should. Okay. I want to talk about eternity and time. Uh, your Kalem cosmological argument equivocates on the conceptions of time. Uh, premise one first assumes God's age. Slower, rule. slower. Okay. Please. I'm trying to get it through. Um, it first relies on uh, establishing that God is atemporal, that there's a relational view of time, that time, uh, in order to be able to have creation, can't have creation outside of time. But then you go back to an absolutionist um, view of time by, um, you need that for a principle of uh, determination. You need to feed, I guess, uh, um, you can't have the principle of determination which you uh, use to demonstrate between an uh, unpersonal cause and a personal cause because if you don't have an actual affinity of events, then... Um, I'll let him have some of my time for my two minutes. I want to hear the rest of the objection. Okay. Um, I was also saying, uh, the whole point between uh, distinguishing a personal cause and a personal cause is because you can't have an uh, integral cause and create something that is uh, finite in time. But um, it seems that you fall back on an actual infinity uh, for the... I'm sorry, I'm real bad at this. Um, you depend on the actual affinity, I guess, before uh, the creation of the universe um, for you to have the principle of determination. Okay. 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 No, I don't think I do at all. Uh, I think the that what? The, the <laughs> yeah. what I'm arguing is that time must have a beginning and that therefore the cause of the universe transcends time as it exists alone without the universe. And what I'm suggesting is that if those causal conditions that are sufficient for the existence of the universe are timelessly present, then the universe should be timelessly present as well. It would be impossible for those causal conditions to exist, and yet the effect of those causal conditions not to coexist with it. Otherwise, they're not sufficient conditions. So if the causal conditions are timelessly given and they are sufficient for the effect, the effect should be uh, coexistent with the cause. But in fact, that's not the case. What we have is a universe with a beginning, a temporal beginning. How in the world can you get an effect with a temporal beginning from a cause that is timelessly present and existent. I can think of only one way out of this dilemma, and that is by positing that the cause is a free agent endowed with freedom of the will and therefore able to create a new effect without any antecedent determining conditions. And thus, you can have a temporal effect arise from a timeless personal agent cause. And I think that solves the dilemma. Time. I don't think it solves anything, but the interesting thing is that uh, the whole argument is based on the premise that time actually did start somewhere and that the universe starts some, somewhere. Uh, the thing is that this is a very much an open question. It is true that our best understanding is of the beginning of a universe with a Big Bang. On the other hand, there are also several ideas about what happened before the Big Bang, and as you might imagine, they're mighty hard to test. 
Uh, there is the possibility of recursive universes. There is the possibility of a multiverse interpretation of, of modern uh, phys physical theories in which, in fact, the universe essentially keeps going on and creating new sub-universes all the time in an infinite uh, series. So it's not by no means uh, guaranteed or, an, or, a, or a fact of life that we did have only one beginning and that's the one that happened 20 billion years ago. Um, and since this is the premise of, of the whole argument that uh, Dr. Craig is making, I would be very cautious because, uh, you know, again, next week, science has this nasty habit of disconfirming previous theories uh, pretty rapidly. So next week or a couple of weeks down the road, we might have a completely different understanding of, of the very beginning. It's a tough problem. I think we have time for about one more question, and I think the uh, person here. Um, I have a question. My religious teacher back at home, when I asked him, why I'm supposed to believe in God and why people don't. He said that most of the famous people that did not believe in God when it's time, when time goes to their end, when they're about to die, they get sad and they start thinking over. So my question for you is, if you think that there is no God, what do you think will happen when you die? Who's going to take care of your soul? And if you just think everything is over, what's the sense of life then? Okay, wow, that's a long question. I have only two minutes to answer that? Gosh. Right. Um, first of all, I, I would, I would uh, question your empirical claim that is, I don't, I'm not sure that it is true that, that most unbelievers repent like, like just at the last minute. Although it's a very Catholic thing to do, I was brought up Catholic, and we were told that we can repent just at the last minute, and it counts. <laughs> Uh, which is a pretty good belief, as I'm concerned. Um, what happens to me after I'm dead? Well, obviously nothing. If, I, if, what I'm right, uh, if I'm right, uh, there's absolutely nothing to be taken care of, so I have no problem whatsoever, um, which is a pretty simple solution to the, to the question. What, may, what gives meaning to my life? Again, I will, I will go back to the idea of a local meaning as opposed to a universal meaning. I really don't understand why people are so fixated with universal meanings. It seems like if the universe doesn't care about you, that therefore you are completely useless. It, that doesn't follow. Uh, and in fact, we never apply that kind of reasoning in our, uh, in our lives, in fact, in practice. I mean, a, a smaller version of the, same, um, of the same argument would be that if the rest of the planet doesn't care about me and about what I, what I think and do and, and write, for example, then my life should be meaningless because only a few friends and, uh, and family actually care. Well, a few people are so self-centered and egotistic to think that, in fact, if the whole world doesn't care, uh, they, them, their lives are not meaningful. Hitler was one of those. Uh, and we know, uh, we all know what, what happened uh, as a result of that belief. I think that the meaning of life is something much more personal. It's different for different people. Uh, to me, life has meaning because of my friends and my family, uh, uh, my daughter, uh, because of the relationships that I have with people, uh, because I love and enjoy teaching, and I think it makes a difference maybe for a few people that I touch during, during my life, uh, because I'm having fun in the general sense of, for example, intellectual fun. Believe it or not, this was fun for me tonight. Uh, it was a very interesting thing. So I have a very fulfilled life uh, without any, any sense of cosmic, cosmic belonging other than that I think I have a pretty good understanding of my general uh, place in the universe, which is pretty tiny. Okay. Well, I feel very deeply the kind of existential angst, I think, that the questioner raised. Namely, if life and humanity are simply doomed to end in the grave, then ultimately our lives are inconsequential. It ultimately makes no difference how you live. Your actions, whether you're a good person or an evil person, whether you waste your life or invest your life for other people, ultimately is inconsequential because the whole human race, the entire universe, is doomed to perish in the heat death 
of the universe. So that I think atheism really is a deeply existentially troubling view. And this isn't just coming from a Christian. This is what atheists themselves have said. Sartre, the French existentialist, has said that atheism is a long and tortuous road. Um, Camus said something similar. It, it leads to the absurdity of life because life is ultimately inconsequential. It makes no difference how you live or what you do. Now, that doesn't prove that theism is true, but I think it provides deep existential motivation for asking the question and for having an open mind when you look at these arguments. Okay, uh, folks, I've got 10 of 10. Uh, now, uh, I don't know how you uh, two fellows feel. Uh, w would you like to continue to have a cutoff point absolutely a 10? Or, uh... All right, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. All right, we, uh, next question over here. Uh, uh, this is way back to your beginning opening arguments about uh, infinity and, and yes. its concept. Uh, my question is, is there a way to distance yourself from your own thoughts, or do, the, or do our thoughts uh, define our reality? Uh, for example, you have self-delusion and also uh, lesser characteristics such as ego, the, mm. the willingness to believe something because you don't want to believe otherwise. Yeah. And that question is, I mean, if there is a way uh, to participate, uh, if there is a way to um, distance ourselves from our own thoughts, uh, why participate in an empirical debate? If there isn't a way, you mean, why participate? Is that what you said? Right, yeah. Yeah. This is a really good question, and I don't just answer this in an academic way, but I think you're absolutely right that the human propensity for self-deception and self-deceit is very, very strong. And in fact, that's actually a biblical theme. The Bible talks about the human heart being deceptively wicked above all things and how easy it is especially for us to rationalize sin when we do things wrong and say it's really all right. And so I... I'm very aware of this, and, and I, I guess all I can say is that because it is such a universal problem, all we can do is to do our best to try to overcome it because it affects everything, and therefore it affects nothing in particular. You see what I mean? It's, each one of us approaches the world from our own subjective standpoint and center of consciousness, and all we can do is try to be as objective as we can, to listen to our critics, I think that's a good thing to do, and to try to, to get feedback from others where others might see a blind spot in you, you know, and, and not rationalize too quickly, but to listen to the feedback from third-person standpoints. And that can really help us, I think, to overcome, to a degree at least, this problem. But since it affects everybody, you know, the theist and the atheist alike, you know, it... it, it affects nobody in particular. So you're, you're absolutely right to point this out, and, and all we can do, I think, is just try to do our best to, to listen to our critics and the views of others to, to help us achieve objectivity. Obviously, I do agree that there is an incredible amount of self-deception that the human brain is, is capable of. I'm a little bit more optimistic than Dr. Craig, however. I don't think that this is a matter of wicked self-deception. I think we're just self-deceiving animals. And uh, ironically, 
actually there is an, an evolutionary explanation for why we're so good at deceiving ourselves. Uh, imagine that most of our, of our history was not uh, lived in, in, in environments such as this, but you know, in the middle of a savanna, for example, in which from a distance I see a little spot over there and I have to decide in the split of a second, is that a gazelle? Should I go after it and, and, and kill it? Or is that a lion? Should I turn around and, and run the other way? Our brains, actually, according to neurobiological research, are hardwired to make fast decisions, regard, almost regardless of the evidence, on the spot, uh, which was probably a good idea uh, before computers, libraries, and all these things. Now we're stuck with those brains, at least for the time being, and that's what's causing part of these problems. Okay. Uh, question over here. My question is about whether or not naturalistic presuppositions are going to preclude us from realizing the existence of God or from a miracle, even if that did happen. And what I mean is, is um, say that the resurrection did in fact occur. From the, system where, from, from the system within which you're talking, it seems like instead of looking for the simplest explanation that all these people did in fact see it, now we're making, um, we're proposing mass hysteria and things like that. And so is there a way that a naturalistic system could accept miracles if they did in fact happen? Right, that's a very good question. Um, essentially it amounts to say, you know, is there ever a way for a naturalist to change his mind? And, uh, and the answer is yes, there is. Uh, the, the thing about the simplest explanation, first of all, let me get to that. I, I don't think that a supernatural explanation is ever the simplest explanation because uh, it may be that the simplest explanation in a, in a general term is, well, these people really believe what they believe. That's, that I agree. But that, then we go back to the self-deception thing. That, in fact, the simplest explanation is that there was a supernatural in intervention. That's not a simple explanation at all, because it violates all the known uh, laws of physics and biology. And so that's not simple at all. Um, now, would there ever be enough evidence for a naturalist to change his mind? I believe so, uh, which is one of the reasons, by the way, I engage in these kind of activities. The, uh, in fact, one of the best arguments against the existence of a Christian God and of a variety of other gods is that there is not enough supernatural evidence. I mean, all the evidence we heard is, you know, old, a couple thousand years, uh, to, due to, to very few witnesses, uh, you know, unclear historical sources, and, you know, unconfirmed evidence on one kind or another. It would be very easy if a supernatural being wanted to make clear that he existed to convince any naturalist whatsoever. Uh, he could just, for example, write a, a big letters in the sky. I exist. You know, we could walk out of, there, of here and all of a sudden we see this big writing which is humongous in the middle of the sky. Hey, I believe. I have no problem with that. It's the amount of, of evidence for the supernatural that is simply way, way deficient in that terms. But I don't think that, that it's, not, it's not true that no amount of evidence would ever convince uh, other people. In fact, as I said, this is a pretty common argument of atheists and agnostics that, you know, if really there is a God that wants us to believe in him, why not simply tell us? You know, you know, in a little more convincing way. Certainly, uh, God could write, I exist in the sky or in the stars. But I think it's clear that God is not interested simply in getting people to believe in him. I mean, the Bible says that the demons believe that God exists and they tremble. But what they don't have is a relationship of love and fellowship with God, which is what God is interested in establishing. I think God is relatively indifferent about just getting people to believe that he exists. That, that really accomplishes nothing. What he's done, I think, is to provide indications of his existence which is sufficiently clear for those with an open heart and an open mind. But it's sufficiently vague so as not to compel people whose hearts are closed. 
and uh, whose minds are close to the evidence. And I think in the case of the resurrection, the evidence is remarkably good. It is certainly enough to justify belief in Christ as the revelation of God, if you're willing to look at it with an open mind. But the naturalist, I think, as the questioner indicated, has got his mind all made up in advance that, that miracles don't happen. Since I had a few more questions in that left, uh, a few more seconds left, uh, so you're telling me essentially that if I want to have a good relationship with my daughter, I should play trick to, tricks with her and pretend that I exist or not exist. I'm here. No, I'm not here. That seems like a pretty twisted way to start a relationship. But, I, I didn't okay. suggest that that was the way you should relate to your daughter, but no. I think that in relationship to God, That's what I said is that he's not interested in just getting people to believe that he exists. What How do you know? Because that doesn't accomplish the end of human salvation, which is what God's ultimate purpose is, is to draw people into personal relationship with himself so that they can experience the fulfillment of knowing God in a personal way. And just getting people to believe that he exists is, is uh, trivial, really. It's, it's, Time. it's not the issue. Uh, I'm going to call, this is the last question. You said one way to justify the existence of God is because lots of Christians have personal experiences with God, and they're not, in fact, having these seizures. That was one of the ways that you, you know, said that he would exist. What do you think of when other religions, Hindus or people from the Far East religions, they also have things that they perceive yeah. to be personal relationships with God, but how is it that Christians are not having these brain seizures, but Hindus or whatever yeah. they are, or they're just wrong, or they're making it up, or how do you explain well, I, that? Well, I wouldn't say that necessarily, because, you see, there's a rich variety of religious experiences. And for Hindus, for example, they don't believe in a personal uh, deity who is the creator of all. The Vedanta Hinduism believes in an impersonal absolute. And so what they experience in their religious experiences are things like a sense of dependency and contingency upon the whole or upon the all. And I, th I think that that could well be a veridical sort of experience. In other words, in, in various religions there could be veridical experiences of God, but I don't think that one will have that full salvation experience of fellowship with God apart from the reconciliation that comes through Jesus Christ and uh, that experience is available through through Christ and uh, I don't see any reason to think that that's non-veridical certainly saying that there are say counterfeit experiences doesn't do anything logically to undermine the veridicality of one's own experience I mean imagine that there were a series of bottles filled with a clear liquid and they all had the label H2O on them, but only one of them had water in it. And the others had, say, a poison. Does the accuracy of the correctly labeled bottle, is that in any way undermined or compromised by the falsity of the labels on the other bottles? Well, well no. So the fact that there may be counterfeit experiences doesn't do anything to undermine the veridicality of my own experience. One simply needs to ask, do I have a good defeater for this experience? For example, was Freud right, you know, about infantile projection theories of the father figure? Or was Marx right about religious experience? And if you can show that those don't work, then there's simply no reason to deny that Time. your experience is veridical. Um, it seems to me that the, the, the question is really, how do you choose, right? 
if you have different kinds of, of religious beliefs out there, there's, there's, a, there's a several choices out there, then how do you know that your is, is the best since everybody claims to have the same kind of experience or similar comparable kinds of experience? How do you know that your experience is right and the other one are wrong? Now, an interesting way, I think, an empirical way, interestingly, to get at that is that there is another way people have, some people have these kind of experiences, and that's the so-called near-death experiences. You know, people that are in coma and they're close to die, to die and they have this experience of uh, something out there, they're, they're, their body's going somewhere. The interesting thing is that anthropologists have done uh, cross-cultural studies of these experiences, and as you would predict from a naturalistic explanation of these things, this is just, the naturalistic explanation would be your brain is going wrong, it's going, you know, bazoo, and is making up things. Uh, what your brain is making up are things that are related to your culture. And sure enough, all these people have different kind of experiences that reflect their own cultural beliefs. And so the, the explanation is either there are a bunch of gods and each one of them is personalized for you, or in fact, there is nothing out there and you're just making it up with your brain depending on how you grew up. Okay, folks, uh, I think our time's up now. Perhaps some of uh, you two fellows will stay up here maybe uh, oh, yeah. talk with some people, uh, you know, who do have questions. And anybody who wants to get in on the answer to the question, uh, you're certainly welcome to do that. But let us give our two speakers a hand.